Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is Cameron. Hi. Hey there, Cameron. I'm in a painting. Oh, okay. Okay, that was tiny Cameron voice. I'm I'm eating pomegranate. Oh, no, don't eat the pomegranate. That's bad. It's good. No, no. It tastes, it tastes, it tastes great. No, it's the most poisonous pomegranate in the world, and also oh, no, doesn't... I'm poisoned, by knowledge. Oh, no. Hey, you remember the 1990s when every single person on the planet was like, Hey, did you know the apple from the tree wasn't an apple, it was a pomegranate? <laughs> remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I remember we were we were all doing that in the early 90s and thinking about uh, the Indigo Girls. Yeah, you remember the Indigo Girls in, a, when, in their contract disputes? <laughs> And their pay or play contracts. <laughs> anyway, I'm a ghost. Woo. Whoa, no, no, no. Okay, well, uh, uh, I just cut open the back of that painting and there was a tiny little desiccated Cameron corpse in the back. <laughs> hey, so, uh, this is a weird book. It's very you weird. Ever a, you ever read a weird one? <laughs> It's a weird one indeed. Uh, today we are talking about 1995's Rose Matter. We we are. Let me come out and say this. I don't think I ever finished this book before. Mm-hmm. I wanted to follow up on this because you'd said it before. Yeah, I, I definitely have started it. Because I do remember that first extremely graphic hundred pages. Mm-hmm. But I don't really remember anything else that happened. So I don't think I've ever finished it. Uh, let me say this too, just here at the top, get it out of the way. This book's good. Oh, okay. It's weird. I don't know if it's a whole book. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You know, like Insomnia had like two okay books in it uh -huh. together. I didn't think they made a very good one book. This has got like four not good books in it, mm -hmm. but that come together to make a pretty good book. Yeah. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed it like page by page, word by word. You know, the the good test of Stephen King, as we've talked about many times before, is that when you're sitting in, you know, you're you you're smoking your pipe and sitting in your big comfy chair in your study. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, thunder crashing outside. Yeah. Always. I'm, I'm sitting in bed reading my book, and uh, if you if you're like, oh, I just want to keep reading a little bit more, you know, and that that raven is knocking, knocking, knocking at your study door. Mm hmm. For you, and I'm I'm going, honk shoo, honk shoo, there's little ponies flying around my head, right? They're mm -hmm. trying to get me to go to sleep. If you could, if you just want to read that extra little page, one more turn, like Crusader Kings 3, you know? That's when you know Stephen King book's really working. And I had this for Rose Manor. Mm. I read I did some hmm. long reading sessions. I think it's pretty good. Yeah. You, it sounds like you don't think that. No, I think this book is very bad. Um <laughs> 
But also, like, I agree with basically everything you're saying. Uh, this is like our constant conundrum, right? Is that we, uh, we we agree on the shape of the object, but then we stand on two different like overhanging cliffs and then debate like how it looks in a uh, silhouette. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I read this book like fully the way through in middle school, high school, something like that. Uh, and I was... You know, I I didn't approach literature in those days in the way that I approach it today. Uh, And I actually enjoyed it quite a bit in like middle school or high school or whenever. Um, It wasn't like, you know, knock it out of the park. This is my favorite Stephen King book. But I really liked uh, sort of the the, the central device of it that we'll talk Mm -hmm. about in a bit. Like sort of the central device and kind of even at the time when I was reading it, uh, it was clear to me that this was King trying to do something a little bit different than what he'd done before. This is, uh, I, I've said it, I've written in the notes here that I would consider this the kind of like conclusion to, uh, King's little spate of novels about women and women's yeah. issues that we saw here at the beginning of the nineties. Yep. Um, uh, and I think this might've been the first of those I read technically, uh, But anyway, at the time, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It's clearly like him trying to do something different. And that's interesting to see, having read all the other Stephen King before. Um, And I think what happened on this rereading is that it became too apparent to me, like the flaws were too apparent, right? Like the things that I think stop this book from being like really, really great. Uh, Because like you said, I think that there's like, four different books here that kind of converge into each other and not all four books needed to be here in quite the proportion that they are. Um, mm. Right. Like, like I think like the organizing principle of the book is I think really, really solid. Uh, but I really felt the um, like King getting distracted by like weird and consequential, like uh, characters every day. Like, how does a character walk through a room kind of shit that <laughs> we get a lot of in this book? <laughs> well, like, there, yeah, yeah. I mean, this just suffers from everything. It suffers from the problem that every book post Needful Things truly has, which is that wherever you want to make the cut, you could literally probably choose 20% of the pages and just remove them from the book. Right. It doesn't matter what plot they're a part of. It doesn't matter what ideas are being expressed on those pages. You can just take any given 20% of pages and rip them out of this book and it would be a better book. Um, it's just way too long. Like, like a hundred, what you're saying is exactly correct. Right. Like it is just chock full of digression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it is ostensibly a thriller. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. like it, it, it is somehow doing two things at one time. And, I think I think my sum total of enjoyment like reconcile those reconciles those two, and I th- I really do think that the fantasy stuff that's going on here, and we'll talk about you know in a minute. It, I mean, it could be cut from this book. Just to be honest, I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. I think it's some of the better. You know, if I got to choose between this fantasy stuff and the talisman fantasy stuff, I know which one I'm choosing. Uh-huh. Easy, yeah, no question. Um, but. Uh, but you could cut it from the book, uh, and but I like the way it and the thriller bounce back and forth. But then there's all kinds of like the mechanisms of how you hold on to someone while they're driving a motorcycle, 
yes. you know, it, and weirdly enough, like in terms of enjoyment, that is some of the most enjoy those pieces of writing. There's some of the stuff I enjoyed the most. It's the places where I'm going, holy shit, Steve, you're doing a new thing. Um, and, you, you know, you are expressing human emotion in a writerly way, in a way you have not done before. But really, like, I think you're right. There's a lot of mechanism here that a 1981 King would have cut. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it, it just wouldn't be here. 20 percent of this book would be on the cutting room floor. And this would be, I think, a, a King classic in a way that it is not currently treated. This is often apparently I didn't know this, but apparently this is often said to be his worst book. Interesting. Yeah, I I, I kind of get that. Uh, I think probably maybe the reason a lot of people come down on that is because, you know, I say the little thing at the beginning, my little pre-recorded thing about the content warnings. And I'll say again here. This is a book with some content warnings, just FYI. Um, And uh, I think the argument can be made that a lot of it gets really like salacious and exploitative uh, and uncomfortable. And I don't, you know, uh, begrudge anyone for for checking out uh, based on that. Uh, And it's also one of the reasons why I don't think I enjoyed the book as much this time around, if only because of how it's put into play. It's kind of King doing um, another serial killer character who is uh, devoid of, uh, well, he's actually not quite devoid of interiority, right? He gets like a little bit of backstory. (laughs) He's got way too much interiority for someone who supposedly is (laughs) devoid of interiority. (laughs) Right. That's what's confusing about that character. Uh, And that, that was what I was going to sort of finish up on is that. On the one hand, there's a problem here that we've diagnosed in King before about like taking like the gross and the exploitative and uh, just kind of like putting that into play for like, quote unquote, the thrills or something. Mm-hmm. Go for um, the gross out. Yeah. Go right. take the tabloid thing, hammer down on it 2000 percent, present it to us again. Yes. So like that happens. And it's like too much and it's not good. And at the same time, because of the way this book works, it goes from like, oh, this is a thing that I would simply cut. And then it like whips back around to being something just really weird that you have to sit with and think about to be like, well, what what do you do with this? Like, what was the point of this? Like, what did he try to do? And like, why? So but that's (laughs) stuff we can talk more about about in specifics as we go on. (laughs) Uh, Stephen King, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, you know, you did that big round of podcasts last year, and you never even approached us one time. But, um, you know, I guess our primary question here, uh, uh, Mr. King, is why? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think all that's right. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, every criticism you could make of this book is, I think, true. I think that it... Uh, for me, it hangs together better than some of the... Like, it hangs together better than Gerald's game for mm, me. Mm-hmm. Um, although, it, maybe another thing to say up top before we get to the summary and kind of talk specifically about the book is that, you know, for 20 episodes or something now, we have been, since Christine at least, right? We mm-hmm. have been honing in on, hey, Stephen King is really good at being a recombinant writer. Right, taking the things and themes and ideas and concepts that he's worked with before and putting them all at play with one another in a slightly different way. In the way that Christine did that for the books previous, this is doing this for all the quote unquote women's novels, right? Mm-hmm. All these novels about women. Not I guess they're not women's novels, they are novels about women. Yeah. Although I guess they could be women's novels if women own those novels. And then it goes all the way back to like The Shining and Carrie. Mm-hmm. 
to do it too. The, it, it might be in the way that Needful Things was doing that, but in a kind of playful way. This might be the most like serious Steve staring you in the eyes and saying, "I've th- I've taken everything and crammed it in here." Right? Mm-hmm. Like we've got Gerald's game, uh, uh, you know, like interior dialogue stuff. We have George Stark's uh, italicized <laughs> narration, right? Yeah. Italicies, italicized, italics narration. We have uh, Jack being reconfigured into um, the evil husband role. I don't even know his name. Norman? <laughs> yeah, Norman. Norman. Um, we have uh, the Carrie White thing going on with, with Rose, right? She literally attains powers uh, that were latent in her forever through abuse. We have... Uh, vampire shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's going like I like. I think we could probably go through nearly every King book, and I could make a direct linkage between a kind of literary theme or idea or Kingian concept that has appeared somewhere else and, and is showing up here. We're even getting TK kind of mm-hmm. with all of this kind of repeated fictional character talking to you outside the fictional scenario thing, right? That works the same way as The Shining does in a bunch of the previous novels. Yeah. Um. And then we get a rerun from the book we just read from Insomnia, where there's a giant (laughs) event put on by a women's organization where an evil person comes to fuck it up, right? Like, we even get the most recent thing recombined. So it's wild to me how much is just in here in the mix uh, that he's playing around with. And I think that maybe beyond the content, but because I think you're right, I think that probably does. um, uh, I, I think a lot of people probably would put this book down because of some of that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but the other part maybe is like, it feels like a rerun. Like if you're familiar with King, a lot of this book's like, all right, well we, uh, I read this one. It was called misery or whatever. Right. Like mm-hmm. I read the, I read misery before. That's the first hundred pages of this book is misery. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who has worked themselves mentally into a spot in which they are trapped entirely. Right. Even though right. they do have the possibility of freedom. And she does, in fact, you know, get freedom. So anyway, I, that that's a thing I was thinking the whole time is like, holy shit, like this is this is like doing what Christine did with all those books before, but like or what Needful Things did with all the books before it. But to the like billionth degree, it's mm-hmm. really extensive here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so with that kind of outlined, do you have anything else to say or should I maybe jump into the summary? You should you should get in that old summary. Sure thing. Okay. So this is the five sentence summary. It is the part of the show where uh, we try to off the top of our heads summarize the book that we are going to talk about in five sentences. No more, no less, except for the times that it's more or less. Uh, and we're just like coming up with it. We're not reading the Wikipedia summary. We are we are trying to reconstruct it in our minds and we take turns doing it and this time it's my turn so rosie is a woman who leaves her abusive cop husband on the spur of the moment that's one sentence Mm -hmm, i got it yeah uh She travels to a distant city where, with the help of a women's shelter, she restarts her life, making new friends, getting a job, uh, finding a boyfriend, and acquiring a mysterious painting. That's two. Mm -hmm. The painting shows a woman in a vague fantasy setting overlooking a ruined temple... 
semicolon, eventually Rosie magically steps inside the painting and navigates a maze and fights a Zelda boss in the temple to rescue a baby for the woman, uh, uh, parentheses, who is really scary, BTW, close parentheses. So, three. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, Norman, uh, Rosie's psychotic cop ex-husband, tracks her down and starts murdering various people close to her, like the Terminator, but with a lot of extremely loud sexual hang-ups. Yet Rosie leads him into the painting where he is summarily killed by the scary lady. Uh, oh shit, that's four. Um... <laughs> Uh, Rosie lives happily ever after with her new boyfriend, uh, except for her remaining rage and grief in her heart. Uh, but don't worry because she plants an extremely poisonous pomegranate tree from the paintings world, uh, in the outskirts of Chicago. And it's, a actually pretty cool symbol. The end. (laughs) Hey, you ever, uh, plant a, uh, evil poison tree in a public park? Would that I could. Same. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I had that same feeling. I was like, I like this image. Like, I understand what's happening here. And also, like, we are like, it is made such a specific point to us, the reader and to the, you know, Rosie, the character that this is like the most poisonous possible tree that could ever exist. And Rosie just like plants it in a public park that is not very often frequented. And it's like, I don't I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> well, there's a lot going on. We'll, we'll talk about this uh, as we talk about some of the fantasy elements, I think, yeah. more, more explicitly. But there is something going on here um, around the Kingiverse, right? Which we mm-hmm. have thrown around as like, a, you know, the shared continuity, you know, Stephen King referencing his other works and kind of creating the shared world, whatever. We talked uh, in the past couple episodes that that stuff is going to get more clear or apparent or... Um, direct maybe Mm -hmm. right you know it's not just references to people it's like big concepts and in this book we get ka and we get uh um uh not oh we get another dark tower oh the city of lud oh do do we get lud yeah lud from uh uh wastelands is mentioned specifically Oh, I totally, totally missed that, actually. But the, uh, no, I'm thinking, it's not Thanky Say, which shows up in later Dark Tower novels, but it's another one of those, like, Dark Tower speech affects. Um, the people in the painting have it. You know, she, she she says something that Roland says. But, so there's a few things like that, but another one is that there's a section in the book where they cross a deadfall, uh, mm. And then, you know, she creates, she plants this tree toward the end that grows and it's the most poison tree. And we'll talk about why that happens or whatever later on. Uh, but she does that and it creates a kind of space where like no one goes. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, she says that there's no cans on the ground or like gum wrappers or anything. You know, people don't go around it. And you get a sense, you know, very explicitly in the use of that crossing the deadfall um, language. Uh, that, you know, this is, it's Pet cemetery, right? It's mm-hmm. the crea- creation of some sort of sacred kind of set-apart space that requires a effort, an idea to to go into it, right, or to engage with it. And so there are these more explicit King of Versi kind of things and some less explicit kind of King of Versi things that I think that I'm feeling throughout this whole book mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of matter there. And that's one that I kind of thought at the end, too. I was like, oh, what, you know, what's up, what's up with this tree? 
Someone going to put their <laughs> dead kid under this tree? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, this is definitely like Insomnia was like laying out some kind of Dark Tower metaphysics. And now this book immediately following upon it uh, is kind of paying off a lot of those ideas uh, in, in fairly explicit ways. And I remember this was, uh, along with stuff going on in Insomnia, like a recurrent topic of conversation on the listservs when I was younger, right? People thinking about... Uh, you know, it, in the, is Ralph Roberts going to show up in the Dark Tower? Is Rosie right. McClendon going to show up in the Dark Tower? Yeah, it, and we will talk about this, when, especially when we get to Wizard and Glass, but it, it is unfathomable, probably, um, to people today. Like, if you weren't around engaging with these things at the time, right? Like, the MCUification, the IPification, the, the franchiseification of so many things has created a scenario in which you can confidently say things like uh, XYZ character is in a world with ABC character, right? Mm -hmm. So like, uh, oh, we have seen Glorf the the Angerer, right? <laughs> uh-huh, yes. In Antlord. Uh-huh. Probably Glorf is going to show up in Avingi. Mm -hmm. Right. Like mm -hmm. the, these things are predictable because they are mass uh, media plotting from a large editorial board of people figuring things out. Right. Mm -hmm. The King of Earth, as it existed, was like, all right, there's all this stuff that kind of fits together. Now let's get on the Internet and yell about it and try to figure <laughs> that out on listservs and forums for years. Um, people, when I really started reading Stephen King, like listservs, forums, things like that, that really it was forums for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it was probably like 99, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, I would say. When, when does Black, Black House comes out in 2001? It was 2001. Cause that was the book where I was old enough and, and, uh, I read it. So probably I'd been reading Stephen King books for like a year or something. Mm -hmm. Black House came out and I read it and I was like. This clearly fits with a bunch of books I have not read yet. What's up with that? You know, mm -hmm. this is like some sequel to a book, but also kind of not just a sequel to a book. And yeah, there were just like these eternal maddening arguments about like, is something from Rose Matter a thing we have already seen? So, for example, we're going to talk about the temple in a bit. Is the temple in Rose Matter like the uh, place where they speak with the demon in the wastelands, right? right. Like, mm -hmm. are they equivalent? Are they the same thing, right? Is there a doorkeeper, you know, in the same way that there is there? What does that mean, right? Like, there's all this, like, attempted fitting things together. You know, is, is it a big coherent puzzle or not? Uh, you know, is all this on purpose or is it not? And that just dominated the discourse in a way that... For the most part, that is, if that exists in IPification at this point, it is, it, it's in things that are more oblique and more distributed. So I'm thinking here about the like uh, back rooms kind of phenomenon or uh, even something like Five Nights at Freddy's with its big lore stuff is more planned and put together uh, than the King stuff was, right? Which is just mm -hmm. like a bunch of books that come out that are kind of related. Right. Um, so well, yeah, and, and I, like notably, right? I think a lot of these franchises today lean into that. Whereas, and I've said this multiple times at various points in the show, I think that one of the things that 
see what was interesting to me about King's approach here is that all of these kinds of uh, close rhymes would be set up between settings, locations, concepts or whatever. Uh, but none of them would ever be hard confirmed. Like that never seemed to be yeah. a thing that King personally was interested in doing. Uh, and it made certain people, you know, frothing mad. Yeah. And it's a really weird thing where, cause I've told you, right. There are lots of, uh, it, it told told you the audience, not you, Michael. It's, although I guess I've told <laughs> you as well that you know there's this huge glut of Stephen King academic books in the '80s, and by like '94, '95, they're done. Mm-hmm. Like the the field of Stephen King studies is happening somewhere that is not published books, um, and I don't I don't really know how to account for that. But normally, right, like. In the 80s, I could go and read some interviews that were published in a volume and tell, you know, about, oh, it's interesting that Stephen King is talking about it in such a way, right? It's interesting that Stephen King is responding to criticism of uh, his portrayal of black characters in the 80s. And then we see, for the most part, black characters drop entirely out of his fiction for like eight years, right? Like, there's interesting stuff to talk about there. Um, And weirdly enough, uh, a black woman is in this book in a way that... Uh, race just doesn't really show up in in uh, quite a few of these books that we've just read, mm-hmm. um, other than in the wastelands, of course. Um, but uh, but yeah, the 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 uh, uh, tools that we would use in the show to normally determine context are kind of like thin on the ground for the mid '90s, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and kind of hard to know what Stephen King was saying about Rose Matter, or if people were like interviewing him about these works and things like that it seems for the most part that like the fangoria interviews and stuff like that have mostly dried up you know yeah. um it, it seems to correlate with the better he's reviewed in the new york times the less he's talking <laughs> to genre people because this book I actually read the new york times review and it was well reviewed oh really yeah positive oh. review okay interesting yeah the the thing that i was thinking about is like that there's some way in which like the Stephen King studies that are coming out in the 80s are almost predicated on the uh, uh, like, holy crap, uh, what's this horror author doing kind of shooting mm-hmm. to the top of the bestseller lists for months at a time kind of thing. There, there's something like, like I guess what I'm saying is that uh, there's something about the immediate wave of Stephen King academic studies being a symptom of his novelty. And then once the novelty kind of wears off and we get something like uh, what we're seeing taking place here in the midnight in the nineties, actually not just the mid nineties, but throughout the nineties King kind of working back around to this loosely connected continuity, kind of a a grand mythopoetic cycle that is orbiting around the dark tower. uh, That's a thing like, you know, that seems to be the thing that he is interested in and doing at this point, at least. Yeah. Uh, and that's a thing that is afforded by the success of the 80s, uh, but also kind of like turns him inward in a weird way. And that is also simultaneous with yeah him gaining actually like a bit more uh, uh, critical respect in mainstream outlets. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Um yeah, he's not, and also he's so big, and everyone is talking about him. He can't be anyone's like little academic project anymore, right? Right, you, like he can't mm-hmm. fit in your pocket. <laughs> I mean, he never could. He was he, you know, he's what nine feet tall. Yeah, nine feet tall can swallow a single leak in one go. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Like, where where do we want to start here with this then? Because hold uh, on. Hmm? A minute. Okay. 
I, I'm having my brain mm-hmm. blown out my butthole. Okay. A book came out in one moment. Mm-hmm. A year, 1998. It's called Modern Critical Views, Stephen King. Mm-hmm by Chelsea House Publishers, which is located in Philadelphia. Do you want to guess who edited and introduced Modern Critical Views, Stephen King? Uh, I'm You're, you're saying this like it's someone that I'm going to know? Yes, it is someone you're going to know. Is it? Is it my dad? Did my dad do this? It's your dad. Ah, damn. No, it's someone who is the Sterling Professor of the Humanities at Yale University. Oh, holy shit. Was it Harold Bloom? It's fucking Harold Bloom. How? Why would he stoop to this? <laughs> he fucking hates this stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Like, the introduction to that, I need to find that now, because I cannot imagine any world in which, like, the intro or whatever it is, like, anything that he wrote for that is just not the most, uh, uh like backhanded hateful thing (laughs) so maybe this is what happened maybe harold bloom stole stephen king studies and it like kind of blew it up you know what i mean (laughs) like like it might the first essay is by chelsea quinn yarborough oh wow yeah clive barker's got an essay in it it looks like some stuff that maybe was pre-written and edited together here anyway so that happened so maybe i just gotta do a little bit more digging on what happened in the mid-90s here with king but Mm -hmm. uh Anyway, just thought that was a little, uh, it's a little fun thing. If people, uh, you want to give the one sentence on Harold Bloom? Uh, Harold Bloom is the, was the Sterling Professor of the Humanities at Yale. Uh, he, he, he is a literary critic who is, was controversial, um, because he was a big advocate for a fairly traditionalist view of literary study and literary criticism, uh, throughout the 80s and 90s at a time when, uh, as he would have put it, these departments were being broken up by various identity-based uh, areas of study, such as uh, race studies, uh, uh, feminist studies, and so on and so forth. He was a big advocate for the uh, grand unified literary tradition that just so happened to be mostly uh, white men. Um, so, A big figure in what are called the canon wars. Yes. Right. Might have uh, even coined the term the canon wars. I don't know. Yeah, he might have. He he started out as a guy who did romantic poetry work and then swung really hard into basically anything, uh, but like was became very big for uh, my area because he decided he was going to do all this stuff with regard to Shakespeare. And so when we talk about uh, uh, canon wars and so on in uh, Shakespeare studies, very often Harold Bloom is talked about, if only obliquely. Uh, He's also the sort of person who wrote literary criticism that's something like uh, (sighs) Hamlet is as a story, is the story of Don Quixote as written by Kafka. What in God's name? What? That, that's the sort of thing that Harold Bloom would say. Like, <laughs> uh, like all all literature exists kind of like on equal footing and you can just like bounce back and forth between like these references and say things like, yeah, Hamlet is uh, uh, Don Quixote as written by Kafka. <laughs> Bro, that is silly. Yeah. Anyway, 
so it's wild that he uh, would have done anything with Stephen King, because also I'm pretty sure he didn't like Stephen King. He, he very famously uh, was like opposed to kind of popular literature, and he did like a scathing review of the first three Harry Potter books at one point. Uh, where he, like, was just talking about how Rowling was an awful prose stylist, uh, and I, I remember that, because I remember, like, the fandom blow up it, with regard to that. Well, we're far afield from the purpose of the show, but wow, that really got me. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, it really, really took me. Um, like, you want to start where, you want to start at the beginning? Okay, uh, uh, the beginning of the whole book? Rose Matter, mm-hmm. no, just Rose. Yeah. Rosie McClendon, mm-hmm. her husband is bad. Yep, yep. the The very uh, first kind of what is it? Maybe like twenty pages of this book. It's like a little short story, basically. No, it's um, more than that. For, yeah, in, probably. In my longer. copy of the book, we're like the first eighty pages or something. Is it? I, I was just thinking of like that specific scene. Basically, uh, the first scene of this book is uh, Rosie having a miscarriage after her husband has punched her in the stomach. Like, that is our introduction to these characters, to this dynamic, and, like, you know, it's already happened. Like, she is already on the floor, and she is uh, feeling, like, the spasms and feeling the blood starting to flow, and he's in the kitchen, uh, like, being very blasé about calling uh, 911, basically. Mm -hmm. So it, yeah, this is actually the preface. Yes. Or no, I'm sorry, the prologue. Mm-hmm. My mistake. Yeah, I mean the 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 book is pretty explicit. Hey, this is going to be about violence done to women, mm-hmm. like full stop. And in that, uh, it, you know, it, it's also very clear that like this is not Dolores Claiborne, right? Mm-hmm. Who who will um, co murder, right? Like there, there's no give and take to this relationship, right? You know, mm-hmm. if, if you remember the, uh, and I don't mean that in any kind of like positive or equivalent way, but in Dolores Claiborne, the way that that domestic abuse situation set up is that like he, you, you know, hits her with uh, in the back with the, uh, uh, the stoveling, like, yeah, stoveling, right? And, uh, and then she just like does the same thing. She smashes that thing on his head. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this kind of, if, if you do this to me, I will do this back to you. And that is the way these characters are drawn. There's none of that here. Right. Like, uh, Rosie is painted as, uh, purely a victim, right? She is someone who has these things happen to her. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of, uh, I think notably, right. Uh, uh, Norman, we eventually learn, uh, often hits her in the back, in the kidneys, in the way that uh, uh, Dolores was hit by her husband with the stove length. And so I think there's like something, uh, I mean, I think King is knowingly there drawing on this kind of contrast that his readers are going to have at their disposal, right? That this mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, she is the woman who gets hit in the back and then she doesn't retaliate. Um, and uh, we get into all sorts of reasons for that. You know, she's like a a more timid person generally. And like we find out her entire family died in an accident. And uh, but because otherwise their stories are very similar because, you mm-hmm. know, they met she met Norman in high school. They kind of got hooked up together that way. Uh, and then the other thing that she has going against her is that uh, Joe, uh, Dolores's husband, was basically just a regular dumbass. Norman right. is like, you know, the like the scheming embodiment of evil, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He he is like clever and evil and a cop. 
right? Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he really is just George Stark, but also a cop. Yes. Right? Like, just straight up and down, right? He is sadistic. He's violent. Uh, he takes a unclear, you know, pseudo-insane pleasure in this. He's a sadist, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. just no... he. There's no internal logic to him, right? Like, you can't puzzle your way into, like, psychological reality. We do get a little bit of... Uh, um, you know, Jack from The Shining in him, right? You know, mm-hmm. he had an abusive relationship with his father, and so then, therefore, he is passing that down. We get that ever so lightly here. Um, you know, the way that's done in The Shining is, like, artful. Like, <laughs> it is its own opera compared to how that is done here, right? Right. Uh, but that is that is the maneuver made here, is, like, you know, he's just passing this down to someone else, and that that is kind of a theme of the book, is that this kind of thing does pass from one person to the other, um, mm-hmm. you know, abuse and anger and rage and things like that. So yeah, he's just George Stark, but with like the power and capability of the police on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the police are a brotherhood and all that kind of, the, what we would now say is the thin blue line, right? That's the mm-hmm. way that that's articulated these days. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, and so he not only creates this like hell world for her where, you know, the things that are described in this book are just horrifying. Right. Um, you know, he violates her body in a thousand ways. He torments her, right? Mm-hmm. We get that long section where he's talking about him poking her with the pencil. Right. Um, like, it's, sometimes it's, like, str- like the most horrible, like, uh, uh, like physically, uh, you know, like, nausea-inducing abuse that you can imagine. And then sometimes yeah, it's... Sexual it, abuse. Yes, yeah, sexual violation abuse. Violation of the body with other objects, that kind of stuff. And then, then it's, like, the... This basically just bonkers thing where he's acting like a 12 year old boy and he's like following her around the house constantly poking her with a pencil and like just will not stop and will not speak to her in a way that is like you know uh uh uh, it makes her feel like she's going crazy right yeah it's uh it's pennywise shit yeah right like uh just straight up well part of what's going on with him too is that he is i don't know what the, the clearly there's some cultural uh, like artifacts that are at play here, and I can recognize some of them, but I can't recognize others. Maybe that's what Steve's pulling on is some like broad criticism of the police, some statistical numbers there, whatever. But but that's stapled onto Ted Bundy. Yes, right. And and, and Norman is explicitly Ted Bundy, right? His thing is biting, and mm-hmm. that is the thing that I think ultimately uh, allowed for Bundy's prosecution. Right? Is that they had. I mean, this is unfortunate, and this is why I hate true crime, right? The the mm-hmm. idea of walking through this in a in a, in a slow and luscious way is disgusting to me, right? But um, Ted Bundy bit one of his victims pretty extensively, and they had teeth impressions in her flesh, and they used that to match his actual teeth. And I think that was part of his prosecution, yeah. or one of the prosecutions for him. And so that's obviously at play. We're also post- uh, Silence of the Lambs, right? And so mm-hmm. serial killer, uh, desire, love there, right? Hannibal Lecter biting that guy's face off, right? So, like, biting and teeth shit is, like, in the universe. And also his use of disguises, which uh-huh. is, you know, the, the Ted Bundy thing, too, right? Like, uh, Ted Bundy returning to the scene of the crime and killing more people in that place in a disguise, right? That kind of thing happening. So, Norman is clearly, like, what if you wrapped uh, Ted Bundy as a character into this police serial killer repeat offender thing and i feel like that might be its own discrete container that i just can't recognize you know what i mean 
Uh, no, I don't quite know what you mean as a description. Well, I'm, I'm saying like, like it, it. I feel like this must be Ted Bundy meets some other oh, actual figure. Okay, but I can't identify the like. Is there a serial killer who was active in the 80s or a mass murderer in the 80s who was a police officer who used that to get away with it? I don't know. But mm-hmm. that feel it feels like its own discreet package okay. of, of dude. You know what I mean? Right. When when uh, King is doing his thing where he rips from the tabloid headlines or whatever, you right. think that there's right. that like Ted Bundy is part of it. But then uh, there's someone else, like some sort of like headline grabbing bad cop who right. is also being folded in. OK, right. And I just don't know who that is. Right. Mm-hmm. But it feels like, yeah, Norman is Ted Bundy meets X other real human being evil guy. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know. My wife is texting me from the other room, the Golden State Killer, even though no one figured that out until later. <laughs> so maybe maybe that's it. Although no one figured that out until later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's so uh, to, to clarify, if you haven't read along, you don't learn all this in the prologue, right? The prologue yeah. is the scene that we described with um, Rosie, like uh, realizing she's having a miscarriage. Uh, Norman calling the uh hospital from the other room uh then we get into the novel proper which is rosie at home alone she is uh tidying up the house as she does and she's making the bed and she sees on the bed sheet like a single spot of blood that didn't get cleaned out from one of the you know various times when norman uh is is torturing her uh and this is like a a moment of clarity for her where she realizes <clears throat> if I don't do anything about this, like he is going to kill me like that yeah. is where this ends. Um, and so completely on the spur of the moment with no planning at all, uh, she takes their ATM card and runs away and she goes to the local uh, uh, like bus station and gets a ticket for some other place far away and, and runs away, basically. And then uh, the rest of the novel unfolds from there. Uh, so the thing about Norman then uh, relative to all of this that I uh, also want to point out is that the uh, ramp up for him, like we don't also know that he's a serial killer right at the beginning, right? The serial killer thing is like a revelation that comes later. Uh, he starts out as just being like the uh, shittiest embodiment of patriarchy you can imagine. Cause we get all these things about like, whenever he watches the TV, he has to comment about a woman who appears on the screen or say some snide comment about her appearance or whatever. Like King is really like letting you know about this guy and how he feels about women broadly, which is not good. Yeah. Uh, and then eventually we find out at one point after, uh, Rosie has run away. Um, uh, Norman really starts to slip, right? Like he he has this fantasy of total control over her, uh, and she thwarts him, and it like unravels his mind very uh, gradually. But also, there's maybe not a lot of unraveling that needs to be done to really get him to his breaking point, uh, because then uh, it's mentioned just like briefly. So what happens is he goes out, he gets a um, sex worker, and then he uh, strangles her to death and then dumps the body. And then it's just sort of offhandedly mentioned that this is not the first time that he's done that. Uh, and so, like, suddenly, like, oh, he's this type of dude. Uh, so the other thing that I wanted to bring into conversation here, just like very minimally, because I know I think I'm I'm more familiar with this stuff than you are. The thing that this book reminds me of a lot are Dean Koontz novels. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I mentioned this actually, I think in the Needful Things episode where we had kind of the the love story arc or like at least sort of, you know, the romantic relationship between Alan Pangborn and Polly uh, as like kind of a through line for that story. That was not a thing that we saw in King a lot. I remarked upon that, but it's a thing I associate very strongly with Dean Koontz novels. Dean Koontz loves to have like, you know, leading man, leading lady, and then they like come together while battling some sort of evil. Um, and that's one of that's kind of what's happening here when Rosie meets uh, her love interest, Bill. We've got a little bit of that, except Bill is also uh King clearly works to like make Bill into kind of the damsel of the story, which is pretty fun. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um uh but we've got kind of that love story but then the the real like uh uh early Dean Koontz thing here for me is the way that Norman is drawn is this kind of like extremely over the top uh to the point that it just like there is a point at this book where it just feels like okay this guy's like a cartoon right like whatever whatever like cultural commentary King might have wanted to be wanted to be doing about say like cops and domestic violence rates um kind of gets overridden by the sheer extent of Norman's madness and sadism and uh, a kind of otherworldly superhuman uh, uh, ability to, like, do harm to people. I um, mean, his, like, drive for that, even. Yeah, uh, he's Agent 47. <laughs> like, his capability is just above and beyond any other human being. And it's really funny that, like, consistently... I mean, it's it is not funny in the thing, but it is um, structurally amusing, right? That she is constantly like, oh, he's going to use his networks. He's going to do his cop shit on me, right? He's going to do all this kind of stuff. And you actually trace his thing in the in the uh, story, and he doesn't do any of that. He just mm-hmm. like he like goes and shaves his head and buys a jacket in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And he and then he can't even hold that together for more than five minutes, right? Like right. that falls apart immediately. He <laughs> and then he's just like a straight up marauding murderer, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a section where he's killing the like the beat cops later in the novel, and it's straight up a a hitman level. Yes, it's like forty seven. You have to find your ex wife. <laughs> It's like, Jesus Christ, like, what are we doing here? Why'd you do all the setup, Steve, with no payoff? Why? Right. So, uh, yeah, so, so, like, on the Dean Koontz front, like, this is a, like, there's a particular Dean Koontz novel I'm thinking of called Whispers that this reminds me very much of, because it's about a rapist serial killer, and it's extremely salacious and gross, but is also about uh, a man and a woman who are, like, trying to combat the serial killer and falling in love at the same time. So there's something going on there. And this book's like kind of weird relationship to genre and audience because uh, Paul Sheldon in the misery novels are mentioned at least like four or five times in this thing. So there's like something going on where King is, I think, uh, thinking about who reads his stuff and what are the other things that they read and, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Uh, but then to say more about uh, uh, what you were saying on like Norman's whole deal, one of the weaknesses of this book is that we just don't need as much Norman as we get. No, he's half of the book. <laughs> yes. Like so much of this is about like embroidering Norman's uh, like story and like uh, tracing the blow by blow of uh, uh, how does he interrogate and like sexually assault the guy who fo- found Rosie's debit card once she threw it away? Uh, what is his tactic for when he's trailing someone on a case? Uh, how does he 
the 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 like huge parts of this book that are just about him pretending to be his wife which again i think there's something there it's like oh man this guy hates his wife so much that he has to go into like a bus station and pretend as hard as he can to be her so he can sit down at the same table where she probably had coffee and then figure out where her bus ticket is right um there, there's something uh uh weird and you know unsettling about that uh and at the same time like this guy could have just been a sketch, right? Like he would have been just as effective as just a sketch without us in his head so much uh, yeah. to, you know, experience his loathing and hatred of the world firsthand. Well, yeah, he would have been, he would have been better just as straight George Stark, which is like, we get the descriptions of what George Stark is doing and him like repeatedly telling us his mission, essentially, <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's an alien from some other murder planet. Uh, but we don't, like, I don't need to know about George Stark's psychological state in, like, every beat by beat, his feelings as he's, like, on the train, right? And and it's partially just, an, uh, like, a literary excuse to, like, vent Norman thoughts into the world, right? Uh-huh. So it's like, we get to hear everything about women, we get to hear everything about black people in particular. Mm-hmm. They're kind of in Chicago, maybe. I, I, I'm pretty sure they're supposed to be in Chicago, perhaps. Well, it's this is an interesting thing. We it is talk, interesting, yeah. right? Like the Rosie it might be Ro- Milwaukee. It could be Milwaukee. It could also be uh, uh, somewhere further south in Illinois. We see a sign for a uh, uh, Kansas City barbecue at one point. And then I also mm. like if you really want to work the Kingiverse lever here, right? The fact that there's a reference to the city of Ludd is important, too, because Ludd is roughly analogous, I think, to uh, Missouri oh, um, or not Missouri, but um, St. Louis. Right. Uh, so anyway. Uh, yeah, like the there's a weird way in which uh, at the big like conceptual level, King here is like, oh, everyone thinks I write novels set in New England. They think I'm a New England writer. Well, here's a novel where people go to the Midwest, which is definitionally vague and placeless because maybe this is in Chicago. We never get confirmation. People just have opinions about Michael Jordan and wear uh, 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 socks caps. That could have been the other opening bit where I've shaved my head and become a white Michael Jordan. Oh my god. Yeah, so that's <laughs> that's the scene where uh uh when Norman goes into disguise, he goes and gets his head shaved, and it's just described as uh as bald as Michael Jordan, only white. Yep. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> uh but yeah, he's just like, you know, uh, he Norman is a is a, just a straight genre horror you know character right mm-hmm. he's everything bad from the world world that you can imagine and also supernaturally bad <laughs> right like turns out he is in fact channeling or like you know a uh, uh, vaguely cosmically equivalent to some other kind of evil in this parallel world that Rosie can access through her painting right yeah um, I think all that's yeah let's let's talk about that in a minute but I I think all that's actually very cool yes I, I uh-huh. really like that that stuff and also that maybe he is downstream from some stuff that he can't control. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, what What does that mean for the whole thing? But first, we got to talk about it. So I, I like the kind of escape novel here mm-hmm. that, that we get of her, like, leaving and then just kind of like going out into nowhere and how we kind of get the beat by beat of that. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think. Th- this is like, this is the stuff that feels like uh, uh, kind of different from a lot of Stephen King work up until this point, right? Uh, like trying to work with a type of character that maybe he's touched on in, in maybe shallower ways. Um, 
but yeah, like Rosie's escape and like, how does she make her decision about the, in all the ways that it gets kind of tedious having uh, Norman's processes of rationalization laid out for us. It's actually more, it's much more interesting to do that with Rosie, right? This character who's frankly, deeply sympathetic. And like, you know, we, we're worried about her. Like, oh, I hope she <laughs> figures out how to get out of this situation. I hope she's okay. Like the scene where she um gets to the city, you know, maybe mm-hmm. Chicago. Uh, the other thing about this is that various landmarks are mentioned that sound sort of like places in Chicago, but the names aren't quite right. And if you look up some of the others, they don't appear to actually exist in Chicago, whatever. Uh, but the... She gets to the bus station in Chicago. She meets a, a like a travel aid guy uh, named Peter Slowick, uh, who sends her to Daughters and Sisters, which is a uh, is it? Yeah, Daughters and Sisters, um, which is a women's shelter. Uh, and she like takes the bus, but doesn't really know how to navigate the bus system and ends up getting lost and like walking around for three hours and just feeling utterly miserable. And every time she tries to stop and like get help, like the person is really nasty to her. Uh, Like this is all like effective, right? This all works. Uh, And I like that. And then it's kind of like, I can tell you the moment where I uh, felt like, oh, this book is not going to work for me in the way that it did before. I'm not going to enjoy this. It was when Norman finally tracks her down to the city, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And now they are in the same location. And I was like, (laughs) "Okay, cool. And then I realized less than halfway through the book. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, it does. It does the king thing, right? Where the final maneuver of the book is a full third. Right, mm-hmm. like the final hour in phenomenal human time, it takes up just an unbelievable amount of space mm-hmm. to actually walk through. Uh, so that's that's part of the issue. I, I really like some of the pieces there around, like they're almost meeting. You know, so you know he's walking by the the um, diner that they that she gets coffee with her friend or whatever, yeah. and he looks through the window and he's like, "Oh, look at that blonde! She's got a, a nice can, like whatever, mm-hmm. all that stuff." And right? she like, dyed her that. hair, so he doesn't recognize her because right. she's blonde and it's, now, and right? It is her with her hair dyed and with her back to him, and and he just doesn't know it. Like that, that's cool, like movie shit. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. like Hitchcock stuff. Yes, uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's really cool and fun. But you're right. Like eventually, we get to a, a place where this all tips over. And it tips over into just taking forever to occur, uh, which is, uh, it's boring, you know, ultimately. There's only, and part of the reason it's so boring is we keep, at every moment, we get multiple sides of what is occurring. So we will get person, we will get Norman, we will get person's fear of Norman, we'll cut back inside of Norman to see how he feels about it. We'll cut back out to that person being violated horribly by Norman. We'll cut back into Norman to see how he feels about fight. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, these things go on for pages and pages and pages of just cutting back and forth with people narrating the same events over and over again. Not great, but yeah, we got to move backward a little bit. Okay. Because we get to what, daughters and sisters. Yes, we get to that. And, you know, it's it's the 90s. We're caught in some different language, right? So it's like phrased as, a, I think, a, a, a battered women's shelter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is not really, that's not language we use anymore. Um, it's not really language that lived outside of the outside of the 90s. Uh, but, you know, the idea behind it is that, you know, there are women who experience domestic abuse and they need kind of a, a step on the way to whatever the next thing is. And so it's a facilitation 
you know, uh, mechanism for that. And it's run. What is the woman's name? Anna something. Anna Stevenson. What an interesting character. Uh huh. Don't you say I love the king maneuver there. That's like. So, you know, she's a uh, she's an older woman. She is running this whole big facility. And there's maybe, what, 20 people that live there, give or take, in mm-hmm. any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have kind of a mechanism for helping you get an apartment afterward. And they have a mechanism for helping you get a job and all this kind of stuff. Right. You know, it's mm-hmm. it is systematized. It's not just some fly by night operation. And uh, there's this conversation that happens with Anna Stevenson. And she's like, yeah, I've never been abused. Mm-hmm. She's like, I've never experienced any of this. Just my parents were rich. And she and then like it's a real high horse moment where she's like, everyone believes that in order to do a good thing in the world, you had to have something bad happen to you. Nothing bad happened to me. I just want to do a good thing. My my takeaway at the moment was more just like King is like for whatever reason, King is just really set on this idea of like, I don't like he he recognizes i think that it would be a trope and a fairly boring yeah. one oh for, absolutely right for anna to be like yes i started this women's shelter after i myself was abused right like i think it's more interesting he's frankly correct in this to have her just be like yeah like i'm rich and like i want to do good stuff yeah uh oh, she's a great character too like yeah she she is uh, rich and wants to do good stuff, but also she like wants to be named Woman of the Year. Well, and this is the <laughs> other thing about her uh, that like doesn't sit quite as well with me in that like from from the moment that she is introduced, ev- all like the narration right. Rosie's perception of her is constantly commenting on her quote unquote unconscious arrogance. Yeah, and she doesn't want to be touched by these, like, hurt women, right? Mm-hmm. Like, don't hug me. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's also another swing at the, like, Gloria Steinem-style character from uh, Insomnia, right? Like, mm-hmm. she she is doing a thing for purposes that don't actually have to do with the thing, right? She th- She's made this her life work to be named Time's Woman of the Year. <laughs> like, that literally is the fantasy going on in her head as she is murdered. Yes, right. We get, like, we get inside her head. We get her fantasy, her, like, deep secret fantasy of being named uh, Person of the Year. And then she walks into her office where Norman is hanging out, and then he bites her to death. Yeah, right. And so it's just like, uh, all right, Steve. But yep. there, yeah, there's just something so like uh, genre-y about her, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that she's she's set up to dodge the problem <laughs> and then in dodging the problem, right? Stephen King can recognize some misogyny when he sees it, mm-hmm. but also it's too good not to, to, you know, to kill this like highfalutin rich woman who who's only doing things for her own betterment, not for the women's betterment, right? Right. Like, there's there's a little bit of Odetta in here too. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, because she like, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, the, the idea that yeah, she's like she's doing a good thing, but she's not really doing the good thing for the specifically right reasons, uh, and she's like a little too insulated. There's the bit. So it turns out we learn this. Uh, this is actually I think kind of interesting, uh, and nicely done. Uh, Peter Slowick, the guy who sent Rosie to this shelter, uh, he turns out to be her ex-husband. And he's actually the first person that Norman tracks down and kills when he uh, uh, gets to town. Um, We can maybe talk about that because that there's a whole bunch of stuff getting bundled up there. Let me tell you. Yeah, does he to you know what? The content warnings at the top have saved me here so I can just say it. 
Does he eat this guy's penis? Yes, that is very strongly implied, and it is uh, implicitly connected to the fact that Norman's own father sexually abused him by performing oral sex on him. Oh. Yep. Yeah. That's something. Yep. Man, this book. Uh-huh. Um. Uh, so. Oh, did that uh, throw you off? <laughs> that, that, that throw you off your rhythm? Uh, so, uh, part of the backstory we get with her and Peter, um, is that she basically felt like, well, she felt like she called him, uh, uh, Peter the terrible or something, but also like Peter, the mad Marxist. Cause he's like a leftist. Like when, mm. when, uh, both Rosie and Norman meet him, he is reading Pravda. Uh, <laughs> that's so, right. I right. About that. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's Remember this Pravda uh-huh. Remember that, that existed. Did Pravda exist in 1994? I don't know. I was, I was curious about that. Actually. You think yeah. he's reading back issues of Pravda? Yeah. He's getting, caught up on his history Hold it on, lasted let's... until 2010 wow so yeah i guess so okay uh so uh uh she calls him like peter the mad marxist or something no it's still i i'm sorry oh. i gotta keep going here yeah it's still going i j- the number that i just saw from 2010 was just like its last public circulation numbers oh it's still going it's still running around yeah okay yeah. So, yeah, the the one of the, I think, like implicit things going on there with her and the relationship with her ex-husband is like a, a, one of political differences that Anna seems very much like, uh, I mean, comes from wealth and like is going to do good with her wealth and like whatever tensions she had with Peter when they were married seem to come down to like a political difference. Uh, so, again, like there's something there about uh, uh, Odetta and kind of like the limousine liberal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 The, the 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 quota uh, champagne socialist limousine liberal. Right. Like those are literally are both at play here. Yeah. Um. The. Uh, yeah. And it is interesting, you know, so I uh, grew up in a in a context around this kind of group of people. So I, I had multiple family members work in a, a women's organization like this when I was growing up. So I like went to a bunch of these events. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And had to be, you know, as you like go through adolescence, you have to like start interacting with those systems differently because there are women who have these very different experiences with men and young men. And there's all kinds of kind of protocol around that. The stuff I don't think I mentioned it in the last episode, but um, the uh, stuff that happened in insomnia right around them discovering the location of the, you know, the secret shelter and all of that. Mm hmm. Like, I've been around when that stuff occurred before, right? I've been uh, around the family member who worked in that facility and had to, like, I forget what it was called. It was called, like, a code blue or something like that. It had, like, its own language, right? And you you just have to drop all your shit and, like, figure things out to, like, how to get this person away. And then, like, do you have to move it or not? There's all kinds of, you know, logistics around all of this stuff. But but the the reason I bring all this up is that uh, it, it I have been to, like, the Indigo Girls event. The Indigo Girls didn't come, but like those fundraising <laughs> events that show up at, at in this book, I've been to those events lots of times in my life, um, and I've also like been, you know, volunteered and worked in the the actual facilities themselves, like this. And this is like fairly accurate, especially to the '90s. Fairly mm-hmm. accurate to the to the deal with all those things. That uh, you know, that's the thing that makes me think. Uh, we talked about this with insomnia too, right? Like. What is Stephen King's connection to these places? Because mm-hmm. he does have a pretty good knowledge of the actual working protocols of the things. So maybe he mm-hmm. just read like a newspaper article, right? Well, like, I don't know. 
So uh, one thing I can tell you, Rose Matter itself has a dedication, and it's to a woman named Joan Marks. Uh, and digging around on this, uh, what I discovered uh, indicates that Joan Marks, the, the one referred to here, there are obviously other women with that name, but the one referred mm -hmm. to here was a social worker who worked in, I think, the Bangor area oh. um, that he appears to have some sort of relationship with. And yeah, like, like, I agree with you that between insomnia and this, it feels like, I don't know, like, Maybe King realized he had more money than God and was like, hey, what do I do with this? Is there a local women's shelter that I can kind of like become involved with in one way or another? Uh, huh. th that was like one of my thoughts was just I, I, that's all, you know, obviously projection. I feel like that's something that I would do if I had enough money to just kind of like start shooting it in uh, various trajectories and see what I could do with it. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I either something like that or something possibly more personal. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I yeah, I truly do not know, and and we can't uh, um, really make a call on it. But I just from my own personal experience, being around these things for like fifteen years or something like that, uh, I like the, and I think probably a lot of these protocols are national in in scope and scale because a lot of them were federal grant based, mm -hmm. um, and so you know you get a federal grant. There's rules and regulations about how the things work, and so. When King is describing the mechanisms of the women's uh, shelter and all that kind of stuff, it's like, oh, like this is kind of the way that that it worked um, in my experience, too. And so, uh, you know, I wonder if there is a I don't know. Right. Like, does he have someone who was telling him about it or was it just like this is how it works and you can find it out from anyone or whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, but that's yeah, that's notable. I didn't even think to look at the dedication there. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I want or maybe a close family friend, something like that. Who yes. Knows? Mm hmm. Right, and he becomes involved because the friend is talking about her work and so on. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so do we want to say more about that, I guess? Or any other characters, I guess? Let's let's talk about other characters who show up around daughters and sisters. Uh, like Gert. Gert. Yep. Uh, <laughs> hey, hold on. Before we talk about Gert. Okay. Why does Stephen King not know the difference between kidneys and a bladder? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, sort of like they, they I mean, I think they're very related, but uh, they what are, are you very related. But does kidney damage mean you have to pee all the time? I don't know. I assume I don't it might. know either. I don't. Well, so there's this thing that happens like multiple times in this book mm -hmm. where people are talking about their kidneys and about how much they need to pee. Yeah. And that like their kidneys are full, so they need to pee. Mm hmm. But that's not. Uh, uh, <laughs> If you've been on the internet, you know where pee is stored, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And it's also in the bladder. Yes. Right? <laughs> and I just don't, I don't understand. Anyway. Yeah, frequent urination can be a sign of kidney disease. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah, I was pretty maybe sure about that. I just that don't know. Because I that just was don't know the state of, about. my cat had kidney disease and he peed all the time, but I didn't want to like <laughs> uh, jump from cats to people so quickly. But yes, it looks like it works the same for people. <laughs> You'd want to make a broad call about the human species right. based on cat species. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, right, you right. want to be safe on that one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, okay, anyway. All right. Gert. Yeah, so Gert is the woman who does uh, like the self-defense training at Daughters and Sisters. And she is an extremely large and rowdy black woman. And that character is... Written about as well as you might expect from Stephen King, which is to say not too great, I think. 
I mean, you know, the character as as like as a concept, I think is fine. I think just uh, King really uh, goes for kind of like uh, like broad stereotypes about uh, uh, like this is the way to put it. Uh, She feels like a supporting character in a movie from this time period. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like the 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 supporting like uh 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 black person character who like shows up in like a 90s sort of action thriller or something like that. Yeah, uh she she is a uh I I mean I do think something happened mm-hmm. uh with the way that Stephen King was portraying black people as we've talked about many times, yeah. right? Um in the 70s and through the 80s. And something really did happen after that letter that came into Castle Rock. That Stephen King responded to, mm-hmm. like po and, and re- if people remember the stuff that we were talking about reading from King around, um, oh the you know I can't remember any character name, um, the the character who stays in the town, Mike in, Hanlon, in, Mike Hanlon, uh, right around the thing of like I discovered Mike Hanlon was black, you know, two hundred pages into the novel or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like I didn't know all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so there's obviously a conversation that's happening between King and his specifically black readers, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. what happens in that Castle Rock letter. And then, you know, I I alluded to it earlier, kind of in a jokey way, but it is serious. Black characters, for the most part, drop out of these books. The books were fairly racially diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if he handled them. No, not I don't know. He did not handle that well. But he was trying to give you a perspective on the world in America in particular that had a lot of different people in it. You know, a lot of different people from a lot of different types of background, you know, and we can even think about uh, the running man. Right. And the kind of like black characters who show up in that who are also stereotypes from a movie from, from that time period. But they exist in that world. And then we went to rural Maine for like six books and it is ninety five to ninety nine percent white. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. overwhelmingly white in, in in a way that I think statistically is an outlier from the books previous to that. Mm hmm. Um, and now we, it, I think, like, maybe th- there's a recognition happening here, or maybe he's just, you know, writing and these things come up. But we, we get Gert in in this book, but you're right, is kind of like a stalwart black woman character from a movie from 1994. You mm-hmm. know, like a friend, but not a close friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, an important person, but not so important that we get, like, her internal monologue, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, she She is a stock character. Uh, in the way that his black characters from the seventies were also stock characters, right? Just mm-hmm. in different types of movie. Yeah. Um, you know, she's the kind of black character who could show up in steel Magnolias. Yes. Although I'm not sure that there is a black character in steel Magnolias. <laughs> yeah. She's like, she's, she's fun. She's personable. Uh, she's very large. Like this, like the, the description of her body comes up over and over again. And partly this is like Norman because Norman is like his entire perspective on the world is like denigrating, racializing, uh, spouting slurs left and right, mocking people for various uh, deviations from the from the norm. Ha ha. Um, so like we get a lot of that. And then we get uh, what I think is maybe the most baffling scene in this entire book where she so Norman eventually like infiltrates a like sort of kind of fun fair that the women's shelter is either putting on or is a part of, and this is where the indigo girls are going to perform. He mm-hmm. does that in disguise. She ends up getting in an altercation with him uh, and wrestles him down and then sits on his face and then urinates on him. 
This is why I was asking about the bladder and kidney thing, because she keeps saying, I heard you are a kidney man, because he, of course, yeah. would beat Rosie about the kidneys. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I was like, I just don't know. I don't know if this is a kidney thing. I well, don't know if the I, kidneys are involved, in, but you're telling me they are. So, well, I was, yeah, and I was taking uh, that from just like Gert fucking with him, right? Like mm. she knows she's humiliating him, and she knows based on what Rosie has said during group that uh, Norman right. specifically targeted her kidneys, and so she's just like, "Hey, man, I, it, you know, trying to fuck with him because like I know stuff about you, right? You just found me, but I know stuff about you because I've been talking to you, your wife. Uh, you're a kidney man. Well, you know, let's let's." Let's hear it. And then uh, she urinates on him and he spends the last third of this book with urine all over his face. Uh, she she pees on him and he goes insane. Yes. Like he like he, it, it's the final thing. It is. It's the overlook taking him over. Yeah. Getting peed on. Yeah. And it's it's just. Uh, you can write anything <laughs> you want in a book. <laughs> and sometimes sometimes a person may choose to write this scene and i don't know if uh hey, you remember I an hour have. and 15 minutes ago where i was like this book is really good <laughs> you remember <laughs> when i said that i was like this book yeah. is good this book is good this, this is the wildest thing that you could write and it works like it, this is all bound up in the fantasy stuff i we can't talk more about why p would drive you crazy it drives me crazy. Uh, uh, it, no way. It drives me crazy. There we go. Mm -hmm. Uh, we can't talk about that without talking about the other element of the book, which is the magical painting. Mm -hmm. Rosie, uh, gets to the shelter. Time skip. Gets a job. Is getting her own apartment. You know that's that's the plan. That's the whole thing is happening like a third of the way into the book or so, and uh, she has kept her wedding ring this whole time. Now, mm -hmm. her husband doesn't know where she is. She she just disappeared, right? She's not divorced or anything. You know, there's no official legal stuff going on. She's just absent. She's gone. And she thinks, uh-oh, he said, how much money did he say he spent on it? Like a month's salary or something? It's uh, a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, he it, makes a show about it, it, at least. Yeah. Makes a big show of it, right? And says, uh, you know, it's because you're worth it. You know, whatever. And uh, she takes it to a pawn shop because she's going to use the money, you know, to help her get her life bootstrapped, all that kind of stuff. Goes in, goes to the pawn shop, gets the guy to look at it. Fake as hell. Mm-hmm. Cubic zirconium. That's it. That's wah, the end of the wah, book. Wah. Yep. That's the end of the book. <laughs> uh, no. And then uh, while she's there... She experiences a um ah, this is this is from a, another book too. It's got to be, right? Uh, she experiences a uh like unbelievable attraction. Mm -hmm. Oh, she experiences yeah, it's a, things. A, oh, it's a Christine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all of those things, right? Yeah. But it, it truly is the Christine, right? Where it's just like she hits on it and sees it and it is so compelling that she cannot take her eyes off of it and must have it. I mean, that is what happens literally in Christine. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, she buys this painting of a woman looking down a hill at like a big ruined temple, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind and it's like Greek vaguely, it's vaguely like Mediterranean or Greek or something. Or like now, that's how there, it looks. I, I didn't look up the painting that's actually referenced here. Did you? 
Uh, I didn't note that there was actually a painting that was referenced. I just remember there was a bit in the women's shelter where everyone discusses like the hot new queer artwork of the early 90s. Hey. Like, yeah, there, there's like a scene where like, I I can't remember if it's because of the painting, but there's like a scene where uh, everyone is like trading like queer artists that they know about, like Robert Mapplethorpe is discussed. That's oh, yeah, it's fun. because of the painting. There's like a whole conversation that everyone in the shelter has because uh, Rosie gets this painting uh, because that's there's another like that's actually probably my kingism uh, that I'll talk about. Oh, it's really interesting. I was looking. I was like, there is a reference here and it's like a Western painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I just don't have it marked here or maybe I can find it in a minute, but, uh, it's very funny. I was like, oh, it'll certainly be on the Stephen King wiki. Nope. But there mm-hmm. is a very explicit claim that this is connected to all world. Of um, course. Right. Like that's so funny to me that they, that the w- official wiki or not, you know, the unofficial fan wiki, uh, has, does not have just the bare bones facts of the information communicated in the book but it does have a spurious wild fan fiction creation <laughs> fan theorization written as fact right mm-hmm. like what, mm, 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 chef's kiss on this goofery but uh but, but to me it reminded me in the description of it of christina's world yes absolutely right that, that's kind of the vibe of it you don't know really interesting i just looked up this um uh you know i was like rose matter painting lots of people have taken a swing at the rose matter painting Oh, have they? That's fine. Yeah. Uh, do you have any like good links to that? Can I look at them? Uh, yeah. Here, let me. Yeah. Let me. Oh yeah, here's a good one. Yeah. So here's just uh, this is actually Rosie and Anna talking about the painting, which gives a pretty good description of it. Um. Uh. So. Uh. Uh. One is actually one thing that's really weird about it is that it's an oil painting and it's under glass, which is not typically what you do with oil paintings. Hmm. Uh, but then Anna is looking at it and she says, uh, she says it's odd. Um, and Rosie wants to know why. And Anna says, uh, because the woman is at the center and yet her back is turned. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the idea here is that the woman is the subject, but she's turned away from the viewer and she's looking down the hill toward this ruined temple. And she's wearing kind of, um, a, 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 a toga of a particular sort of, uh, vivid red purplish color that turns out to be called rose matter. Um, so because the woman is at the center and yet her back is turned, that seems an extremely peculiar approach to this sort of painting, which has been otherwise quite conventionally executed. Now she glanced over at Rosie, and when she went on, her tone was a bit apologetic. The building at the bottom of the hill is out of perspective, by the way. Yes, that's, this is Rosie. The man who sold me the picture mentioned that. Mr. Leffert said it was probably done on purpose, or some of the elements would be lost. I suppose that's true. She looked at it for several moments longer. It does have something, doesn't it? A fraught quality. I don't understand what you mean. Anna laughed. Neither do I, except that there's something about it that makes me think of my romance novels. Strong men, lusty women, gushing hormones. Fraught's the only word I can think of that comes close to describing what I mean. A calm before the storm thing. Probably it's just the sky. She turned the frame around again and restudied the words charcoal on the backing, which are rose matter, just by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, is this what caught your eye to start with your own name? N- nope, says Rosie, blah, 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 blah. And then they talk a little bit about that. And then Anna points out that there's no artist's signature. Um, so that's uh, like I wanted to read all of that, actually, because also, uh, you know, this is some Michael Lutz bullshit. Um, but I I can't help but read this also as something of a, a meta commentary 
from King about like this novel itself, right? The the temple being out of perspective in a way that is like clearly and obviously like incorrect according mm-hmm. to laws of perspective. Uh, but as we learn, once we get into this fantasy world, there's like an ancient evil in that temple and that ancient evil is in some way analogous to or connected with uh, Norman. And as we've talked about, Norman as a character in this novel is out of perspective, uh, right. He takes up too much space. He's like too over the top to feel really believable. Uh, and so I think that's really interesting because there's also a bit later in the novel where Rosie looks at the painting again, kind of after she's done some magical stuff. And she's just like, yeah, this is just like it's like the author's like boring or not the author. Rather, this is me projecting my reading. She says the artist's uh, 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 boring run of the mill romanticism. Right. So it's not just like self-commentary, but there's even like uh, building in the critique there. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is just like a fraught, torrid love story with a bunch of sensationalism in it. And yet at the same time, like it was constructed purposefully. Like I put things out of perspective on purpose. Yeah. And like the whole thing kind of sings of uh, purposefulness, right? Including the the glass frame job, right? Mm hmm. Like the something is going on here that is designed and inten- and full of intention, right? right? You know, it's it's constructed in a way because it's out of the ordinary. Um, uh, uh, so the thing that shows up in the book, like one page after what you just read, is that uh, it's likened to this painting. Desoto looks west. That's not a real painting. I, it's not a real painting. That's why I just looked it up. I can see. I I bet this is a case of Stephen King getting a thing wrong. Because there are a couple paintings of DeSoto doing this thing and looking to the left of the frame that that mm-hmm. are depicting this thing, but or or maybe he's not getting anything wrong, but he's compositing like these paintings of DeSoto into one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's like here, let me like show you this woodcut. Like this, like you can see. Okay, yeah, yeah. And there's like quite a few paintings uh, in this mode. So mm-hmm. um, anyway. That's that's notable too. That's fun. It's like, oh yeah, it's like this other painting, not a real painting. These uh, examples of people attempting the rose matter painting are, I don't know, pretty good actually. I mean, the first one I think is maybe a little much, but that's because it's like the painting as it's the painting with the stuff coming out of the painting into the real world. This other one, uh, where you can see like the pony grazing and everything, that's pretty good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. take a swing at the making your own version of the. Uh, of the Rose Matter painting. <laughs> Rose Matter Challenge. Yeah, the Rose Matter Challenge. It's fun. Uh, yeah. So, okay. Magic painting acquired. Um, And then she goes home. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, magic painting acquired. Boyfriend acquired. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Steiner, who is the guy running the pawn shop and kind of the jeweler. The man who, you know, tells her that her uh, wedding ring is fake. Yeah. But you know it's not fake. Their love? Her connection to other people, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. Mm-hmm. He rides a motorcycle. <laughs> it's funny, he rides a motorcycle and he is also, like, described as kind of a Tweety dork. <laughs> I am beginning to get the sense that Stephen King has purchased a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that, did, did you get that, uh, you know, I'm poisoned by knowledge in some ways, because I know for a fact that somewhere around here he does get one. Oh, but you yeah. get a sense right about, I don't know, the day before he wrote these pages, <laughs> he purchased a motorcycle. Yeah, no, he very famously did a cross-country motorcycle trip to promote Insomnia when it was published. Uh, right. And so... 
<laughs> we are seeing that here on the page. Of like, here's how you sit down on a motorcycle. Here's how you have someone ride with you. Mm -hmm. In the same way that I'm pretty sure he learned how to fly or like one of his kids maybe took flying lessons uh, because we got, you know, uh, uh, the Night Flyer and uh, Deep No and Insomnia back to back, basically. Right. The, oh, and also uh, the Wangaliers. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, he actually Stephen King became a commercial uh, jet pilot for a uh -huh. while. <laughs> it was it was like the bit from uh, Airplane. It's like you're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Watched Airplane uh, fairly recently. Mm -hmm. Still mostly funny. Yeah. I mean, there's parts of it that are not, that, that have not held up. Mm -hmm. There's some parts that have. They're funny. Yeah. You know? No. I mean, I Hard love that. Hard for a comedy to, to live five years, let alone 40. Yeah. I love that absurdism. Mm-hmm. Well, I like Airplane. I watch Airplane 2 as well. Oh, yeah. And uh, holds up less well joke-wise, but mm -hmm. concept-wise is extremely funny. <laughs> Uh, is that the one where it like goes into space or something? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. It's a plane that is essentially a like a a, a space shuttle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so that's funny. That's yeah. funnier. Um, the uh, yes, yeah, so they get this. She goes home. She go home. She go sleep. She go honk chew, honk chew, honk chew. Mm -hmm. Over the course of several nights, she realized painting real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, painting real place. And good God, it's belabored. Mm hmm. Yep, she hears crickets, but how could there be crickets in her little studio apartment? Ah, uh, because there are crickets in the painting and they're coming out of the painting. Yeah. Anyway, she goes in there. And this whole time, she's like, you know, having some pretty major effects of spending, what, 14 years or something mm. with him? With Norman, yeah. Something yeah, it's, like a, that. it's more than a decade. Mm -hmm. And, uh... You know, so she's got all these trust issues and, um, you know, still having anxiety about that and still kind of fearful and all reasonable and, and I think fairly well sketched uh, in mm -hmm. the book. And uh, then she goes into this painting and gets a full on face full of Stephen King fantasy shit. Yeah. Mythological bizarro shit. <laughs> Out of the realm of Steve King's normal stuff, right? I, I, mm -hmm. You know, there's duplicates of her. There's more than one duplicate of her. There's a bull. I don't know. You probably understood this better than I did. I think it's pretty cool. There's a uh, pony. Yeah, there's a pony. He's great. That, that's the other thing is that the um, the frame on the painting, like the, the painting doesn't really change sizes, but like the framing of the painting seems to like shift outward to where she looks at it, you know, the day after she gets it. And it seems like she can see more than there was there. And she's like, I know there's more because there's a little pony grazing over at the side of this painting now. And there was not a pony yesterday when I bought it. Uh, I think Stephen King played Mist. I, I was also thinking about that, actually. There's something about this that does feel kind of uh, misty. Yeah. And uh, Owen would have been the right age. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, actually, just to say this, because it might become relevant later, uh, Rosie also gets a job reading audiobooks. So another yeah. thing that it seems like Stephen King has done is reading uh, for an audiobook, and that has become this character's job now. <laughs> yeah, the... Um... This is one of those places where I was like, we don't, this doesn't need to be in this book. <laughs> like, like she can get a job, but the complicated nature of the audiobook thing, it's the so industry. detailed and overly complicated, right? Like, it's just beyond the pale here. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's like there. If for a minute, it seems like this is just going to swerve, and we're going to get like the star is born of audiobooks because she's so damn good at it. She's got the right. voice of a young Elizabeth Taylor. We are told, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, so she uh, ends up uh, waking up one night. Uh, I think maybe by this point, there's some hint or intimation that Norman is on the trail. Uh, so she's, you know, feeling anxiety. Uh, she's uh, moving. Things are moving forward with Bill, the guy from the pawn shop. Uh, and there's a bit where she tells him, like, you shouldn't see me anymore. Like, don't come see me. And then he comes to see her anyway. And then she gets really upset. And then he's like, but, you know, I really wanted to, like, support you or whatever. And then she kind of comes around on it, which is like a. I don't know, like, whatever, like, it's, it's a, it's a romance, right? Like, the man, uh, doesn't listen to the woman when she sets a boundary, and then that ends up being a thing that is, like, good, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh. Yeah, there's, like, a contract negotiation scene. (laughs) Yes. Right. And, like, which is interesting, right? Where there's, like, a, you know, this, and it's part of the universe that Stephen King's trying to set up here and trying to, like, access or infer about, right? But that. Rose Matter is, you know, even though this is like the fourth book about women somewhere in there, right? Uh, it's the first one where it's like, did you know women talk to each other? <laughs> and they talk about stuff men do? They go into the ladies room and they discuss how men might take advantage of them in contract negotiations. They talk about their earnings. Did you all know that women talk about their earnings with one and we can't hear them? <laughs> Did you know this shit? I mean, it has that vibe to it, right? Where it's like, women go to the bathroom and they talk about numbers, and we don't know what those numbers are. (laughs) It's so close to an I think you should leave skit, right? (laughs) I was picturing like a a, a extremely ill-advised like Little Rascals reboot where we're going to like Boy boy HQ. (laughs) They've got guys with like big headphones on and they're like listening in like what are the numbers they're talking about i can't make it out the mics aren't good enough Mm -hmm. it's porkies but they're they're it's just women sitting and doing you know like complex calculus in the bathroom the boys are trying to get a gander of it (laughs) speaking of porkies by the way Uh, i was looking up uh movies from oh from 1982 uh-huh. Oh, because I was trying to get a sense yeah. because we are uh, for Shelve by Genre, our other show. We have a bonus episode coming up on uh, Conan the Barbarian. And I was looking at what other movies came out that year that did well. Porky's. Porky's was like the number five movie in 1982. Wow. That movie is dog shit. That movie sucks. Like, beyond the <laughs> politics of it, right? Yeah. Which, you know, retrograde in all ways, even retrograde for 82, whatever. Like, the bracket all of that. Bracket all content. The movie just sucks. It's not a good movie. Right? Like, there's nothing redeemable about it. Number five movie. How disappointing. Mm-hmm. Speaking of movies, uh, guess what? What? The bonus episode for this show that's up right now that you can go listen to. If you're tired of hearing us talk about Rose Manor, you shouldn't be, but if you are, you can go listen to us talk about Carrie, the De Palma film. Yeah, 1976. The OG. It, the OG. A uh, little spoily here. Holds up. Yeah, it does. Good movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, you can go listen to that, patreon.com slash range touch to... Uh, to hear anything about that but uh all right walk us through all the stuff that's in the painting michael Lutz. okay so 
uh, Rosie steps into the painting, and then there is the woman who she comes to, everyone kind of comes to call Rose Matter, right? Like, uh, uh, synonymous with the painting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that woman is always looking away, uh, and there's something wrong with her. Like, just clearly, like, she feels wrong, she feels threatening, and when Rosie gets into the painting, she can see there's, like, something on her skin, like, her skin isn't right. It almost seems like mm-hmm. she's got some sort of plague, or she's even rotting. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also a uh, servant character here who is uh, a black woman who is like a version like Rosie recognizes her through, you know, cosmic telepathy or whatever as a version of a woman named Wendy Yarrow, who was a woman who brought a police brutality case against Norman uh, actually during the year where uh, Rosie had her miscarriage and like mm-hmm. the idea being that like uh norman was so upset over this woman bringing a police brutality case against him uh that he took it out on rosie like she had the miscarriage and then ultimately he does in fact uh through some undisclosed you know uh, uh machination have wendy yarrow killed um so this woman uh shows up uh and she plays the role of kind of this, you know, black servant character who is telling Rosie like, nope, don't look at her. Don't talk to her. She is she's not she means, you no harm, but she's mad like she she will hurt you and she will not mean it. Like, do not look at her face. Uh, Just listen to me. You need to go down into that temple and you need to bring back the baby that's down there because Rosie can also hear like a baby crying somewhere and it's down there in that ruined temple. Um. Uh, and it becomes like a fairy tale where, uh, the lady whose name we eventually learn is Dorcas, um, she gives Rosie all of these kinds of, uh, rules. Like, you're going to go in, uh, you're going to see a river. Uh, do not drink from the river. You must not, under no circumstances, drink from the river, no matter how thirsty you are. Because if you drink from the river, you will forget everything. Uh, you will come to a tree. There is fruit growing on this tree. You will take some of that fruit. Uh, she calls it a pomegranate, but then when Rosie finds it, uh, she says it doesn't look like a pomegranate, but we never actually get a good description of how it doesn't look like a pomegranate. It seems like it's described very much like a pomegranate. It, it, uh, <laughs> what if Rosie doesn't know what a pomegranate is? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, she's like, you know, you you know, take the, the uh, seeds from the pomegranate, then uh, go down into the maze and uh, get the baby back or whatever. You know, all these rules. Like, when you get the fruit, do not eat the fruit. Do not even touch the fruit and then uh, put your fingers in your mouth because it will kill you instantly. Yeah, it's all kinds of Greek shit, right? Yes. You, you know, like, both in obvious reference here, right? And then there's a little bit of the, in, uh, you know, I was joking at the beginning of the episode, but literally this is the time of, like, New Age Christian reinterpretation books. I read so many of those books from the 90s, right? Angelology and all that mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of them is like, did you know that the apple in Eden was a pomegranate? It was mistranslated. That was like a big thing in the 80s and 90s for some reason. So like there's that coming in here and also the Greek myth structure stuff of like, here's a bunch of arbitrary rules. It doesn't really, no one knows why they are rules, right? Orpheus, don't look back, okay? Mm -hmm. Why can't you? Because you're not supposed to. It's the rules, right? So there's a lot of that going on here and that kind of structures the whole painting experience here. 
Right. And the um the fallen temple is described as looking kind of Greek. But then what I like about it is that that like gets muddier. Like it it's it looks a little Greek from one angle. Uh, and then when Rosie gets closer, she realizes it actually looks a lot like the Methodist church that she went to or whatever when she was mm-hmm. a kid. Like it's got that same kind of structure. Uh, so cool stuff there. And then also uh, in the in the temple. Like beneath it, there's a maze, and in the maze, there is this thing called the bull, uh, or as Dorcas calls it, uh, uh, the name she gives it is uh, Arrhenius, uh, which is the Greek name for the Furies. Yep. So, uh, Dorcas, huh? Yep, Dorcas. Well, you know, I, I was going to uh, throw this out on Shelf by Genre, where, if you're not listening to it, we are reading uh, genre literature broadly, but in, in our inaugural season, we are joined by Austin Walker, and we are reading Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, and there is a character named Dorcas, a very important character named Dorcas in that book as well. You might think, that's a very odd name, and I'm here to tell you, it isn't. It is, in fact, a conventional shepherdess's name in uh, ancient and early modern-like literature. So that's why it's showing up in both of these places, I think, is that it's uh, being seized upon as like basically, uh, you know, the the uh, Jane of being a shepherd in some sort of vaguely Greek pastoral setting. Mm hmm. So fun with names. That's what we're all about here at Just King Things. Uh, I, There's nothing I love more than names <laughs> hi- historically. Mm hmm. Remembering them so well. Yep. Knowing names, remembering them. Uh, having them available for immediate recall. That's me. <laughs> mm-hmm. The names guy. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and there's also like the, so, uh, Arrhenius, the bull, uh, which, you know, this is actually an interesting thing too, right? Is that that word in Greek is plural and refers to the tripartite, like feminine, uh, chthonic furies. Uh, and here they get condensed down into this name for, uh, this rampaging, stinking, very masculine animal, uh, that has one, has one eye. Has one eye and he's blind in one eye. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a phallic a, symbol. Uh, oh, well, not just that, but like uh, he gets to be the Cyclops and the Minotaur. Yes. <laughs> you know, it really is like Stephen King's like, how, how many Greek things can I get in here? Mm-hmm. And I love how this shit, many? to be clear. <laughs> I This is the stuff I hate the most. Really? Oh. Yeah, this this is uh this is like two things to me. You know what I mean? This is this is like what if Marvel characters were also like what if Iron Man was also a Disney princess? That's this to me. <laughs> like I don't I don't like them for the same reasons, but I do like the way that like the plot rings out. It's just like the setup to me. I was like, "All right, we're doing this. All right, mm-hmm. fine, sure." Yeah. Um I mean, I guess I like it because I think there's a lineage that King is playing with here. I think he's like playing with Arthur Machen, who I've brought up mm-hmm. maybe before uh, yeah. on this show. I don't remember. Oh, the yes, Greek I God did. Pan. Yes, uh, which was very much seemed like uh, uh, an intertext for him in Mrs. Todd's Shortcut. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. This this uh, similar sense of uh, vaguely continuing pagan mythological realm uh, alongside like more everyday reality. Um, and King has talked about uh, being indebted to Machen in, in interviews in various places. Uh, and I like Machen, so I like seeing this kind of happen here. Rosie goes down into the maze. Uh, she finds her way through it uh, by using the... Uh, uh, oh, she also gets... Uh, so Dorcas like cuts herself um, and soaks some rags with blood and then gives them to uh, uh, Rosie. 
Uh, so she has these along with her, along with the fruits. She finds her way using the seeds from the pomegranate to like mark her place, like, you know, Hansel and Gretel in the woods with the breadcrumbs. She gets to the center of the maze and finds a little baby. She picks up the baby and there's the bull. It's found her. So she throws the bloody rags. Uh, it is distracted by the smell of the blood. And then she escapes from the temple. Uh, gives the baby to Rose Matter, and uh, Rose Matter tells her, like, actually told her, like, one of the first things she told her was, I repay. So this is, like, the midpoint or just past the midpoint of the book. She has done some sort of favor for uh, Rose Matter, and it is very unclear if this is, like, Rose Matter's baby. Like, how did this baby get in the temple? What is Rose Matter going to do with it? And we don't really get answers there, which I also think is good. Like, Stephen King, uh taking the opportunity to not explain something. Uh, but symbolically, right, there's uh, clearly a kind of, um, like, by this point, Rosie, in the real world, has dyed her hair, so it looks more, she's blonde, like this woman, right? She's wearing yeah. her hair in the same style, and there's a, a I mean, it, it's doing the thing that I think that this kind of parallel, like, world story can do really well, where, um, uh, Rosie's story is this woman who was she she lost a baby, right, was beaten by her husband. And then uh, the thematics of that become uh, like mythological metaphors in the parallel world where she rescues the lost baby for this other Rose uh, that uh, the baby was taken from or is being guarded from her by this uh, uh, horrible masculine monster thing. Yeah, I just find that a little pat. Right, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. just a little, a little too clean and allegorical for me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and weirdly enough, doesn't have like the kingy edge to it in some ways. Right? It feels like this should be more complicated, mm. but it's not. Like it's, it's a clean one-to-one -one allegory. <laughs> These things are accomplished and they're done. Yep. She says thank you, and then she gets. What's the name of that game? Forspoken. What she gets? Forspoken. Yeah, she gets a cuff with magical powers. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, she gets her armband. Uh, yeah, she gets a magical armband. Th that's the coolest part of the book for me. <laughs> this is rad. Like, what if every victimized Stephen King character got a magical superpower armband that allows you to punch your abusive husband good? <laughs> yeah. It's great. Like, there's, uh, you know, we spend so much time, especially after this point that you just kind of talked through, right? We spend so much time in Norman's head, and he is just the worst shit heel asshole idiot abuser on the planet. Mm -hmm. He's and literally he a troll. He's a, yes, yes. He calls his process of like <laughs> yes. pretending to be someone and tracking them down trolling. He does call it troll. I forgot about that. <laughs> but so he sucks shit. And then he shows up in the book. You know, we've got all this set up. He's George Stark. He's this murderer. You know, he he's Ted Bundy. And then he gets his ass whipped by every single person he encounters. Yes. I mean, there's a couple people he, you know, he swings by and wings on the way by. You know, he bites that one woman and, you know, really hurts her pretty badly, abuses her. He kills Anna Stevens. You know, there are yeah. people. That's it. He, he gets through. He kills a couple cops, right? Like, he's got yeah. a body count. He's killing people. He's doing evil shit. But for the most part, the major conflicts that occur here are him showing up and just getting demolished by another person. And that's fucking fun. That's yeah. great. That's good stuff. 
Yeah, notably, the only times he actually successfully hurts someone after, like, leaving and going, like, after coming to this place is when he surprises someone by, like, breaking into their house or, like, when he kills Rosie's friend at the hotel, he, like, pulls her into the, uh, like, linen closet or whatever. Uh, Anytime he actually has to go up against someone who knows, like, what they're in for, they whip his ass. Yeah, it's great. So let's talk about one uh, little scene in between now and then, because actually we're kind of like... Weirdly enough, on the down ramp, it sounds mm-hmm. like this is all building. It kind of is the 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 painting scene that you described of going into the painting. That's probably slightly before page count wise. That's probably slightly before the halfway point. Mm-hmm. Right. Give or take yeah, something like that. Uh, It is the end of the novel. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like in terms of like structurally, it's the climax and everything after that's just downhill of like cleaning up the Norman problem, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it does take half of the book's words to get there. And so that that's what really makes it drag toward the end, I think. Um, but the thing that happens in the middle is she, that her and her new kind of boyfriend. What, what is his name? Bill. Bill. Uh, they go on a country ride to a lake um, or, you know, by a lake, the lake uh, on a motorcycle. And uh, they have a good old time. It is the day before. The kind of fundraiser festival where the Indigos are. No, it's the same day as the fundraiser Mm -hmm. festival where the Indigo girls are going to play. And uh, they go up and they go to this little place. And it is it's this kind of like secluded public parky place. College students go there and hang out, stuff like that. Right. But it's it's a little off the beaten path. And they have this moment with the with a fox and her kids. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is the thematic center of the novel. Mm-hmm. Yes. You think it'd be that painting thing <laughs> with its right. like symbolic and thematic allegory. No, it is not. The heart of the novel is a conversation that she has with Bill where he is talking about how um fox uh, uh what are the what are the female foxes called? They have a name. Oh, I don't remember. Fox well, mothers, whatever they are. Yeah. Female foxes. The vixen. Vixen. That they can, uh, they can get rabies, and then live with it forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, not exactly forever, but but ultimately, uh, they can endure it for a very long time. And I don't know if this is true or not. Whatever. But the the kind of thematic core here is that she looks at this fox with its babies, and it's it's you know looking at her. And there's this question of does it have intelligence or not? You know, we kind of get deep into her thoughts about this fox. This is straight up Cormac McCarthy shit. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is yeah. some real Stephen King going for it. And it, it it is no mistake. We'll talk about it at the end of the book, obviously. But there's no mistake that we return to this for the very final scene. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the best writing in the book. Um, but so so we get this kind of thing of her being there and this being a special place. And also this idea that there can be something that is inside of you that can be killing you the whole time. And you can be doing things that make sense to you and carry you along day to day, take care of your little fox babies, all kinds of stuff like that. But inside of you, there is something metastasizing that is going wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And it might happen so slowly that you don't recognize it. Now they go, the Indigo girls concert. It's a carnival. Everyone's having a grand old time. Okay. Mm -hmm. They do that. Norman shows up. Norman has gone full Agent 47. Mm-hmm. Bald. Yep. Jacket. Wheelchair. An elaborate and backstory. That we get the full rundown on. <laughs> we do. We're in his brain. 
Uh huh. We are fully in there. Ah, gosh. So his fake back. So the idea is like they know he they're looking for him. They know he's there because oh, maybe we do have to backtrack one step because he has killed Anna Stevens's uh, ex husband. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, Peter. He's done that. You want to talk? You said we want to talk about that. Do you want to say anything about that? Oh, I just mean like uh, uh, when he uh, sees Peter, he, the entire like again, it's all from his perspective. It's just filled with anti-Semitic like diatribes. Like he sees right. Peter reading Pravda and then is immediately like, uh, oh, this guy's like Jewish and he's like a bleeding heart liberal and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he breaks into his house and uh, murders him with uh, in, in ways that we've already discussed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess this is probably one of the places, maybe the first place where we get the um, Norman blacks out and does things that he can't remember doing. Yes. And so he bites, it seems like he bites the guy to death. Yeah. I mean, he obviously also bites off like parts of his anatomy. And that's how everyone in the book alludes to it. Parts of his anatomy. Mm-hmm. Certain parts were missing, like things like that, which is also, you know, a serial killer phenomenon, 80s mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, but, you know, we get this thing that he's like stuffed the bot. He kind of remembers stuffing the body behind uh, like the hot water heater, mm-hmm. something like that, or the furnace. And uh, he kind of remembers biting him to death and biting all over him. Right. So there, there are all these pieces where it's like he doesn't quite know. And as the book goes on, there are more and more of these gaps, essentially, mm-hmm. um, where he just doesn't quite know what he's doing. And at the same time, he has this like pure dissociation with himself. And that really kind of kicks into high gear. Uh in in just a bit, you know, kind of after his altercation here. Mm-hmm. But but before that, he does have this like elaborate undercover backstory of being a bike, like a motorcycle dude. Yes. A, Do you like, remember the exact details? Yeah. He's like a, uh, I think an army vet uh, who became a biker. Uh, the biker thing is like for real there. Uh, yeah. Who then had some sort of, or he had a, a horrible car wreck and then was nursed back to health by a very nice woman. And from that point forward, he decided to be more of a feminist. Uh, and because he he hated women before. Yes. Uh, and his name is Hump Peterson. <laughs> I forgot about that part. And also, uh. There's like this whole internal monologue for Norman where it's like, uh, you know, he's atoning. And by atoning, you know, you go the other way as much as you know, people who atone, they flip back the other way as much as they were the other way. So he's a huge misogynist. So now he loves women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's this like, I don't know, theorization of like why people do stuff that is common in King. I don't know if this is a belief that is held by King or not, uh, but this kind of thing shows up quite often. Um, you know, we just read a book about abortion activists, right? Like right. the anti-abortion terrorists, quite literally, uh, in the previous book, uh, where we got some of this narrativization going on. So he shows up and uh, he's going to basically infiltrate. He's going to do an Agent 47, right? He's yeah. going to infiltrate. He's going to find his ex-wife. He's going to track her down. He has this whole elaborate scenario in, her, in his head of what he's going to do to her. It's terrible shit. All that kind of stuff. This blows apart immediately. Mm-hmm. Because he can't control himself. Mm-hmm. Because he's a monster. <laughs> he's a fucking cartoon character, right? And yep. like that that's the genre space we're in, right? Like he is he is this uh rip from the headlines, serial killer fantasy cop guy who is also a cartoon villain. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, so he and he's doing vampire shit. 
<laughs> like I get the biting thing, like whatever. Yeah. That's that's fine. But he's like explicitly Nosferatu in these women. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and that yeah, like Gert catches him out. They have their altercation. She humiliates him. Uh, at some point, either before or just after this, he has like stolen a rubber mask from a kid at the uh, festival. And oh, it it's is, it's right after this. And it's yeah, uh, it's a mask of a cartoon bull. It is Ferdinand the Bull from Looney Tunes. So this is this is like this gets great because uh, one, this is such a Stephen King thing where it's a uh, this iconic mass produced like cartoon character that now becomes uh, regardless of whatever associations you may have with Ferdinand the Bull from the old cartoons uh, becomes this uh, like embodiment of Norman's alter ego, right? He starts talking, like, talking to the mask. He's, like, holding it on his hand and, like, making the lips move as he's talking with it. And it makes him angry, but also he feels camaraderie with it because it's a bull that has, like, flowers decked about its uh, uh, horns, and so it's, like, implicitly emasculated and... Uh, all this, all this wild, wild stuff. And so, and he starts like putting on the mask to like feel safer, right? To feel stronger. And then eventually he wears it when he steps into the world of the painting and finds out he can't take it off. So, oh no. Uh, but yeah, yeah. what other book did that happen in? Uh, the Haunted Mask by R.L. Stein. <laughs> oh, it is the Haunted Mask. I forgot. <laughs> I was thinking it was a Stephen King book, but you're right. It is just the Haunted Mask from R.L. Stein. <laughs> It is it's from a goosebump. Yeah. It's just a good he got goosebumped. Norman got yep, goosebumped. He got goosebumped. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's really good. Um <laughs> Yeah, I I like all this stuff. I like that his like this other fantasy world kind of like colonizing him and warping him and doing something to him. Uh you know, it's it's always in him to begin with, but there's something going on with like the fantasy world is obviously not just like Rose's projection, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a real space, and things that happen in that world emanate out, right? We get we get her uh, armband or whatever, right? And mm -hmm. we get the crickets, and we get the debris that comes out of the painting, and all that kind of stuff. And then we also get, you know, this thing about him. That I I don't know the 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 minotaur that's there, the Arrhenius or whatever, right? That it finds possession of him and pulls him in in order to fulfill a function in the painting world, you know, in the this other alternate reality. And then, like, the myth has to reassert itself to, like, do itself again, right? The thing mm -hmm. that she did before has to happen again, but with much higher stakes, or presumably higher stakes. Um, I don't know. I, 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 This is where it all kicks in for me. Where I was like, oh, this is good. It's not just, like, a metaphor or an allegory or a thing that stands in for some sort of emotional journey. It is the mechanism through which we solve the real world problem. I like mm -hmm. that a lot. I think it's really good. Yeah. And it's neat because uh, it does a, you know, an overlook on him where sometimes the mask, the voice that he is using to talk to himself question mark with is like his voice and sometimes it's his father's voice. And then occasionally like it's a voice that he doesn't quite recognize that seems mm -hmm. to come from somewhere else. Yeah, it's the shining. Yeah. I mean, not literally the shining, like uh, the property, uh, you know, the TK or whatever. Uh, but but it is uh, it it is the way that the Overlook Hotel works on Jack. You yeah, know, it, it is the exact same thing here, combined with Cujo. Uh, you know, like the narrative, the way that Norman falls apart here is the same way that Cujo falls apart. 
yeah. um, in that book. It, it's so fascinating to me how so many pieces are du- directly in con- conversation with these previous King works. You keep skipping over the Gert part where she, you know, like in a cartoon, or no, like in uh, Street Fighter Five. you know, when you do a super move on somebody and you like mm-hmm. squish them and their eyes pop out of their head. Yeah. That's what happens to Norman when Gert like hip tosses him judo style and then jumps on him. <laughs> I I didn't skip over that. I talked about that. No, I mean, you I guess you're it was like, oh, they, Gert, they fought Gert. But it's it's elaborate. Uh-huh. You know, it's like she whips him over her uh, her hip, hip tosses him, picks him up, like throws him against the wall, smashes him, jumps on. And then, of course, does the peeing thing. Anyway, it's just it's more elaborate than we've let on is all I'm saying. It's like mm-hmm. a full fight scene. Uh, in a way that Stephen King doesn't really write, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. when's the last time he wrote body blows, <laughs> you know, into a novel? I don't think it's very often. Yeah. So I like that a lot. Uh, so yeah, he you know gets that mask. He tracks down uh where Rosie is living because he got it from Anna's office. Uh, he kills the cops that are doing their stakeout. Uh, this takes forever. Uh, we it's, we get so much about how he takes out these two two cops. Uh, he injures Bill pretty grievously, and then Rosie pulls uh, herself and Bill into the other world. Uh, he follows along. Uh, she leads him down to, well, we can, I guess, do the blow-by-blow here thing, but uh, basically what happens is uh, Dorcas is there again, and she takes Bill. She's like, I'm going to hide him away. It'll be fine. Uh, and then she has Rosie dress up as Rose Matter, and then uh, she leads, like, again, like, the, the thematics of the bull and kind of like the the um, the bullfight. Uh, she's wearing this red robe, and she leads him into, the, leads Norman into the temple, like, deeper and deeper, uh, down to the point where the poison tree is, where the actual Rose Matter is waiting, and then Rose Matter turns around, and she eats Norman. Yeah, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's some Pennywise shit again. Yeah, like he is the first character to look into her face, and she turns out to be, in some vague way, a giant spider. Well, yeah, something beyond that, too, because she has, like, threads coming out of her face. Mm -hmm. We get this implication, and I I didn't pick it up at the time, maybe I should have reread the section, but, you know, after this, Bill has, like, all these terrible dreams and shit, and we can talk about that a little bit, but one of them is, like, it seems like he looked in her face even though he was instructed not to. Yeah. Somehow or something, yeah. Because the, the thing that he's screaming afterward is like, she doesn't care who she kills or, or something like that. Well, and that like, there are threads coming out of her face and stuff. Yeah. You know, he's he's talking about that specific, like, he's talking about what she's look what she looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, and how, how, anyway, but hard to know. Yeah. Um. The, uh, so yeah, that, that dude gets eaten. And mm-hmm. I love that, uh, Rose Matter turns on them at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, uh Rose Matter uh kills Norman, uh shoves his body full of like fruit seeds and then throws his corpse down into the maze. Oh yeah. Uh you know, for you know, just question mark reasons, like mythological bullshit, like <laughs> you know, something's gonna happen because of this. Uh and then they're leaving, and uh Dorcas gives uh uh, Rosie, a uh, 
like a little vial of some of the water from the river in the temple that you're not supposed to drink from because it'll make you forget everything. Uh, Dorcas gives this to Rosie and she's like for him, meaning Bill, like he's going to like it's not enough. It's not a lot. It's not going to make him forget everything, but he's going to need to forget some things that he saw tonight. Uh, So it's not enough for basically two doses, Uh, one for immediately after and then another for in the future if anything comes back. Uh, And... Uh, Rose Matter comes over and they have like she talks with uh, Rosie a little bit uh, and Rosie then uh, looks up. Right. She does the thing that Dorcas tells her not to do. She looks up and she looks into Rose Matter's face and she's just a woman like she's a sick woman. Obviously, again, there's some sort of plague thing going on and there's other weird stuff where uh, uh, Dorcas has said something that like she had me drink the waters of life with her or whatever. And now we've lived like countless centuries. Like they have, you know, there's this whole implied like weird sword and sorcery backstory for these characters um, and that they are like kind of at the end of an extremely long arc uh, uh, of a long life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, she has like the face to face with Rose Matter, so she know like she sort of conquers her in that way. Like she, uh, uh, this embodiment of sort of feminine rage and sort of like her own rage. She looks it in the face, uh, and she sees it, and it's just a woman. Um, and then as they are getting ready to like pass back through the painting, uh, yeah, like you said, I I love how. And then suddenly, like Rose Matter just swings out and starts like transforming again into the monster. Like there are like bugs crawling out of her mouth, and she screams like, "Give me back what's mine!" And she's like scrabbling for that armband that you mentioned. Like that's the she suddenly sees that, and she's just like, "Why do you have my thing?" Uh, and that's like the last actual direct contact they have with her is her like grabbing that back as they go back into the real world. Well, I actually really like the ambiguity that's there because it's she says, give me back what's mine. And I think it says she reaches for Bill and the uh, um, uh, and in in response to that, R- Rosie throws back the cuff. Thing. Right. And so it's a little unclear, like, oh, what is she reaching for? What does she want there? I, I really like that. Even in that moment of like, she's the plot solvency mechanism. She like does all this stuff. Even then, you really don't know what she wants, right? Right. Um, but then the fantasy stuff is done. Yeah, it's over. Yeah. No, and I think you're right about uh, uh, the bill thing because uh, you know she has him drink the stuff. He kind of forgets everything. Uh, mm-hmm. We get like a, you know, we skip forward a couple of years. Uh, they get married, and it's on their honeymoon that he awakes in the night, talking about the threads in her face, and she doesn't care who she kills. And so there is something going on with Rose Matter. Um, ultimately, as a character, not the the whole novel, although this is also descriptive of the novel. Uh, that like there, it is it is straight up like essentially like feminine rage that turns outward toward men that like mm-hmm. rose matter is like literally a man eater like uh uh like there's something about uh uh the femininity that has been abused to the point that it is turned against uh, masculinity kind of in all of its forms or is ultimately maybe going to like, you know, do whatever with them. So she has to give him give Bill like the next drop of uh, uh, forgetting water, waters of the river Leth or whatever. Uh, and then we get the well, they eventually have a kid. Uh, she name she doesn't name her Carolyn, which is what she would have named uh, the baby that she was going to have with Norman. Um but then we get the ending, which is what we've already alluded to her. She also gets some of the uh, horrible pomegranate seeds that uh, Dorcas gives gives them to her and is like, don't forget the tree. 
Yeah. Uh, we don't know what that means, but then Rosie puts it together for herself here at the end, and she goes out and she plants them in that uh, park where she and Bill went on their uh, uh, little park date. Right. Um. Oh, there's something about that I wanted to say. Oh, God. Uh, oh, it's going to haunt me forever. There's something about the... Ma- oh, the, the fight stuff that happens in there. Uh, which part? Or, like, after after they... Like, the time skip thing? Mm-hmm. And then, like, the elaborate, uh... Like, the thing that grows inside of you stuff? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she fantasizes about smashing a pod of boiling water on her husband's head? Yes. Right? They're like, I... I, it's unfortunate to me that uh, that the book doesn't pay that off until the last thirty pages. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a different book that I can understand, especially within like King's storytelling method and the way that I think he he seems to think about these issues. Right, like this, this is not biographical. I can't make any claims about this. Right, but the novel has a very particular imagination of what these women are capable of at a certain point, right? And mm-hmm. the recovery process is very linear, right? Like, she she is rediscovering her life again. She's rediscovering her life again. She's rediscovering her life again. And it's really only when Norman dies that she gets to be like a whole person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like in the way the book is written, it's only after you're a, a whole person that you can do bad shit. Right, that yeah. the negative effects of your life beforehand can actually actually do something to you, right? Right. Um, and uh, so it takes into the last thirty pages to realize the that the thing that made her able to finally leave Norman, right? This kind of independence, this determinacy within her, that can turn into rage, right? Mm-hmm. That can that can curdle. And we do get some track for this with the Fox stuff, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. 200 pages before, but it's not in terms of rage or anger or whatever. It's like latent capability. And one could read the Fox stuff as like, oh, this is a way of thinking through what Rose Matter is, which is this alternate version of her that can do violence or whatever. Lo and behold, the alternate version of her that is capable of violence and rage and maybe doing some of the things that Norman did is inside of her right. uh, the whole time. And so she's deeply worried about that. And so then she goes and uh, remembering the tree, which I had n- no idea what that meant until it was revealed kind of at the end here. She goes and plants the tree and then she sees the fox again. Right. And mm-hmm. this is very unkingy, right. To like use the, like a, uh, an oblique symbol to, to suture up the end of the novel. Mm-hmm. That's not King. No. That's Cormac McCarthy. Uh, I'm going to read the end of the book. Yeah. Because she talks about, as you said, going back to the tree kind of regularly as her child grows up and all this kind of stuff. Also, Rob Lefferts died. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The guy who got her the uh, book recording job, I believe. Yeah. For the non-readers. The Aaron Deepno of this novel. (laughs) The just guy who's there. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, he dies in a parenthetical. It's it's truly, you know, uh Rob Lefferts died on his way back to his home planet. Like it, it doesn't matter at all and yet it is revealed anyway. Uh 
Now it is simply enough to come here, and to fold her clear, unblemished hands in her lap, and to look at the tree of her rage and the hard splashes of rose matter that will become, in later years, the numb sweet fruit of death. Sometimes as she sits before the little tree, she sings, I'm really rosy, she sings, and I'm rosy real. You better believe me. I'm a great big deal. She isn't a big deal, of course, except to the people who matter in her life. But since these are the only ones she cares about, that's fine. All accounts balance, as the woman in the Zot might have said. She has reached safe harbor, and on these spring mornings near the lake, sitting in the overgrown silent clearing, which has never changed over all the years, it is very like a picture that way, the sort of humdrum painting one might find in an old curio shop or a pawn and loan. Her legs folded beneath her, she sometimes feels a gratitude so full that she thinks her heart can hold no more, ever. It is this gratitude that makes her sing. She must sing. There is no other choice. And sometimes the vixen, old now, her year, her own years of bearing long behind her, her brilliant bush streaked with wiry threads of gray, comes to the edge of the clearing and stands and seems to listen to Rosie sing. Her black eyes as she stands there communicate no clear thought to Rosie, but it is impossible to mistake the essential sanity of the old and clever brain behind them. Yo. Mm-hmm. What? Steve? Good stuff. That's great stuff. Mm-hmm. You think you read all the pretty horses? I think so. Right. That like I, I'm I'm not joking when I say like the these images of the fox in particular are mm-hmm. straight out of a McCarthy style book, right? Like Yeah. Uh yeah. Uh, all the pretty horses wins the National Book Award in ninety two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Yeah. No, it feel it does it feels so McCarthy ish. Yeah. But it's good. I that's some of the best writing Stephen King's ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's Rose Matter. Was that your kingism? <laughs> that he writes like Cormac McCarthy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I got a different one. Okay. Well, uh, then speaking of kingisms, if you have nothing else to add, we can move into segments. Uh, we can move into segments. Yeah, oh, sure. Right then. Uh, my favorite kingism, then. This is the part of the show where uh, we take what we've just read and each of us picks out their favorite kingism. Uh, some line, image, word, textual technique, whatever that we think is uh, indelibly kingy. Uh, typically an example of good king stuff, although occasionally I have dipped into the well of things that are not so great that I still associate with some weird ambivalent fondness <laughs> with Stephen King. Right. Uh, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. Yeah, mine is l- the place where the gross out is gone for. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's the uh, it's uh, the night shift maneuver, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the most uh, nightmarish, gross thing in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the things that she says about how she's like sexually harmed by Norman. You know, those are just horrible. Uh, those are the most gross out, right? Or like him biting the people. But it is where it's on 459 for me. I'm not going to read it. But uh, it's where he comes at her with the bull mask and uh, her, it, and it's dark. And so her mouth ends up or his ha- her hand ends up in his mouth mm-hmm. and he bites her fingers to the bone. Ugh, already gross. But then she like doubles down and she grabs his jaw and just rips it. Yeah. And like pulls it straight down and dislocates his jaw. Yeah. That's fucking cool. And that mm-hmm. that to me is like, I don't know that everybody would have gone there. That's a real Stephen King <laughs> to be like, you thought the thing that was horrifying was getting bit. 
Mm-hmm. That's not horrifying. Having your jaw ripped off is horrifying. Let's go. That's good <laughs> stuff. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so my kingism, uh, I actually wrote a different one here in the notes because I decided to switch it as we were talking. Uh-oh. Uh, my favorite kingism is actually the uh, painting that you already referenced, DeSoto Looks West. How that comes up is that after Rosie gets her painting and she brings it back to the shelter and all of the other women are kind of talking about it, uh, there's a young woman at uh, the shelter, like truly like a young woman. She's like early 20s or like late teens uh, named Cynthia. Uh, She's the one who uh, Norman takes captive at the festival and he like uh, uh, harms her in some way. I think he like cuts part of her ear off or something. Um, But uh During this point, she is looking at Rosie's painting and she's like, you know, it reminds me of this painting that my dad, her dad was a Methodist minister or something Mm -hmm. uh, when she was a kid. And he had like an office in their basement. Um, And of course, it was like provided by the uh, church and everything. So the stuff there wasn't really theirs. It had come kind of like pre-decorated. And there was a painting on the wall of her father's office called DeSoto Looks West that showed the uh, uh, Spanish conquistador Hernán de Soto uh, looking out over what she assumes is the Mississippi River. Uh, And the reason that it reminds her of Rosie's painting is because it exerted a kind of weird uh, fascination on her when she was a kid, where she had this feeling that if she just kept looking at it and if she looked at it long enough... Uh, she would see things start to move like eventually and she never did, but she felt like it uh, like she she talks about how, you know, I just felt like if I if I looked at it long enough, if I waited, I would see like a canoe come down the river uh, or I would see like the the uh, leaves start moving in the breeze or whatever. There, there was something like weird and magnetic about it uh, in a way that was not exactly frightening, but definitely wasn't normal. And then eventually, uh, one day and like her, her parents noticed that this was happening. And so then one day she went down there and the painting was gone. Like her mother had just taken it and it disappeared and she never saw it again. Uh, and what I like about it, uh, is that this is like its own little like micro story here in the Mm -hmm. middle of the novel. It's like such a good Stephen King style short story of, yeah, when I was a kid, like my dad had an office and there was a weird painting there and I it was sort of haunted in some nebulous fashion uh, and it felt like maybe it was building to something that something was eventually going to happen with this painting. But no, nah, my mom like thought it was weird and took it down and I never saw it again. Like it just gets so uh, uh, forestalled in that way. So I thought that that was really cool. Right. I, yeah, I thought that was really cool, too. That's why I was like, oh, this must be a real painting. Nope. <laughs> It, it, it is great to do a Stephen King thing where it's like, uh, I'm going to explain a fake painting by way of another fake painting. Mm-hmm. That's fun. <laughs> that's a fun thing to do. Right. Well, and that's the other thing that's actually really elegant about the way that this story shows up is that, uh, you know, maybe this is the thing that just happened with Cynthia when she was a kid, but also it establishes for you like, hey. This is a world where magic paintings possibly exist. Like this isn't the like this Rose Matter painting is not the only weird magical painting that someone in their life has discovered. Oh, yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. Right. That's fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, next segment then is what in the Kingiverse? And this is sketching out uh, connections between what we just read and various other uh, Stephen King stories, the, the the larger continuities that slowly come into focus and especially are coming into focus now in, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I already mentioned that Misery and Paul Sheldon are mentioned several times. Uh, 
like Rosie reads Paul Sheldon novels, Anna Stevenson reads Paul Sheldon novels. I think a couple of other people talk about them. Uh, another fun detail about this is that the misery novels that are named are misery novels uh, that are not the misery novels named in misery. So, uh, you know, oh. it's Paul Sheldon who ended that book trying to write his big non misery, you know, literary fiction breakthrough assuming this is, you know, the same level of the tower or what have you, didn't work out for him, and he had to go back to writing his misery pot boilers. Oh, it's, yeah, it's very... So the ones that are mentioned in the novel are Misery's Quest, Misery's Lover, Misery's Child, and Misery's Return. Yeah. Which is, like, the one he writes. Yeah. And then Misery's Journey is the one that is here. Mm-hmm. And it, it is not... It's not in Misery itself. That's fun. That's good mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, uh, oh, there's actually, there's one of the lines where, um, when, when Rosie is thinking through her situation and she compares it to a Paul Sheldon romance, mm-hmm. uh, and she says something about like, oh, if it were like a Paul Sheldon novel, uh, you know, things are constantly, uh, or like everything that happens in a Paul Sheldon novel, like even if it's really contrived and like overly convenient, uh, happens for a reason, right? Like there's always a right. reason for a thing that happened, which is just a, a fun little comment there to square alongside the conversation he has with uh, Annie and Misery, where he just like is doing things for no reason. And it's actually <laughs> Annie who's like, no, like she needs to have a reason that she comes back. Like there has to be a way that she can look like she's dead, but then come back. She can't just come back. Didn't get out of the cock car. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me that King... Writes multiple novels about authors being hamstrung by their readers, right? <laughs> like, you know, and by the by the not even the readers, but the, the fictional entities that they make, right? You know, misery and the dark half and uh, the secret window, right? Like, he just keeps going back to it, and then writes a whole kind of different genre of novel, right? Like these women in trouble books, essentially, right? Um, yeah. And they're not just novels about women. There are women with problems, um, <laughs> you know, women with troubles. Uh, and and yet still, you know, goes back and scratches the same wound. Right. Fascinating. Uh, the character that I mentioned, Cynthia, uh, her mm-hmm. actual her full name is Cynthia Smith. Uh, this is uh, uh, looking forward. We're going to see more of Cynthia. Like Cynthia is going to be a recurring mm-hmm. character uh, uh at least once more. I don't know if she shows up any other times, but I know she's going to be a central character in a future novel that we'll talk in what about book? this year. Uh, in Desperation. Oh. You know, I have a pretty good memory of Desperation, but this might not shock you. I don't remember any of the character names. <laughs> I remember Stephen King is in the book. <laughs> like, like not literally him, but like a writer who's doing a cross-country tour on a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. I remember that guy. Uh, you know, the Sheriff Etrigan or whatever. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> Etrigan. Yes, yeah, from DC Comics. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember her. I remember the. Now that you're saying the name, I re- I know what character she is. I remember the little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be it. Maybe I remember four. There's like nine characters in that book, and I think I remember four. So <laughs> uh, I don't. Know. I remember liking Desperation quite a bit, and uh, I've I've well expressed my opinion on the regulators. Terrible. Mm-hmm. It's my bet. I mind is open. I have not read it in a long time, but it is my currently in my brain definitively the worst Stephen King novel. Like oh, no yeah. question. 
Like not even, it's like whatever you imagine the worst one is to be. And then a thousand gradations of literal hellfire in brimstone and the frozen plains and everything else in Dante's Inferno. And then the regulators mm-hmm. at the very bottom of that. There's well, like the I'm- tripartite Satan head. And then in his butthole, there is the regulators. I mean, it's uh, I mean, Richard Bachman wrote it, so <laughs> I guess that's true. It's, right. you know, it's not Steve's fault. <laughs> yeah, right. Steve wrote Desperation, <laughs> the, the good one. Yeah, right. Uh, so along with that, uh, you know, the characters recurring and whatnot, uh, uh, Rose Matter and or Dorcas both, I think, talk about Ka. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's like the, that's the relationship between uh, Rosie and Rose Matter. It's described in terms of Ka as being this kind of like circular arrangement or kind of like reinforcing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you know what? They say well met. Yes. That's what I was thinking of earlier and I couldn't pull it. They say well met. Mm-hmm. There you go. Uh, yeah. And then Dorcas talks about seeing the city of Lud. Uh, specifically like uh, heads on spikes in the city of Ludd through the streets. And Ludd was the uh, big fake like Midwestern New York fallen to ruin that uh, they traveled through in the wastelands. Uh, The image of a malignant manta ray shows up here a couple of times, which we have seen recur in The Shining, uh, in the Dark Tower series. uh, And now here, like Stephen King just going for manta ray hate, I guess. Uh, Susan Day is mentioned. Anna Stevenson has a picture of her shaking hands with Susan Day on her office wall. Uh, and then this one is a bit more of a stretch, uh, but it, it seemed evocative to me. Uh, at the end when, uh, Rosie is, uh, uh, like taunting Norman, uh, and is this, are they in the painting at this point now? I don't remember. Uh, but she says, uh, yeah, he, he, so this is an important thing. He calls her Rose. Rosie is what she calls herself. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when she leaves the house, like she starts thinking of herself as Rosie, but he always called her Rose. Uh, and he says, Rose, stop this. And she says, I'm not Rose. She said, then gave an exasperated little laugh as if he were really the stupidest creature alive. I'm Rosie, Rosie real, but you're not real anymore, Norman. Are you not even to yourself? But it doesn't matter now, not to me, because I'm divorced of you. And this, oh yeah, this is when she's like leading him off through the temple. But the right. uh, the you're not real thing uh, seems, it, unless Steve forgot, seems like a resumption of uh, the conversation between the space, well, not really between, but, uh, 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 oh my god, Jesse, uh, in Gerald's game, what she says to uh, the space cowboy. Oh yeah. Right, you're not real. Except mm-hmm. there, it's a lot more ambiguous. Here, it's it's true, right? He is be. This is the point where he has gotten haunted, masked into uh, the Looney Tunes mm-hmm. uh, uh, merchandise. You ever get uh, you ever get so divorced you had to kill your abusive ex husband in a Greek maze, <laughs> in a, in, a, in aggression hell maze? Like half of that's maybe seventy percent of Coen Brothers movies. So I guess that's true. I guess that's right. <laughs> they, they haven't gotten that the Greek in maze. Brother, where art thou? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when when she lured uh, uh, George Clooney down into that <laughs> Thracian maze. <laughs> It's Holly Hunter, like, biting off George Clooney's face. Yep. Uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape. Before we get there, let me say this. This is is a part of every episode, but I need to say it. If you want to make the Rose Matter adaptation, producer, let us know. Let us know. I'll adapt Rose Matter. It's good. It's good. Statement. It's good. It's a good Mm -hmm. book. I think there's, yeah. 
uh, percentage-wise, there's less bad here than there are in some of his better books, quote-unquote. <laughs> I'd rather read this than The Stand. Yeah. Well, it's faster, in theory. That's true. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, yeah, like, I think uh, uh, this is a story that could adapt really well. Like, you have to make some calls about what you're going to cut, but uh, I also think maybe some of the stuff that you can trim out is is a little obvious. So, uh, yeah. Uh, Uncle Stevie's Mixtape, the segment where we review all of the music that is mentioned or, like, appears in the book that we just read. Uh, you will notice that we have talked about the Indigo Girls multiple times. However, not a single Indigo Girls song is actually named. So do we want to, like, conceptually review the Indigo Girls here? Yeah, four stars. I like the okay. Indigo Girls. All right, cool. Well, yeah, they're good. They, I mean, they're, I don't think they're one of the best bands of all time or anything, but they're good. Yeah. It's uh, just it was just so notable to me. Like there, there's a way in which uh, maybe this is because, uh, you know, we are now reading the books whose like circumstances of composition and publication I was alive for. So I can like pick up on how 90s everything is in a way that, you know, in, in, in like the earlier books, um, you know, I think a lot of the like uh, lived details of the 70s probably just like slide over my head. Mm-hmm. Uh but, like, the fact that everyone is constantly talking about the Indigo Girls made this feel like such a 90s book in that way. Well, and it's also to the genre of music. that yes. The Indigo like uh-huh. Like, it could have been Tracy Chapman, too, right? You know right. what I mean? Like, there, there's such a specific, like, um, uh, oh, God, what was the festival? Uh, Lilith. Lilith. Right, Lilith Fair, right? Yeah. And it ended up having all these kind of issues of uh, turfism and things like that. I do want to say, briefly... I enjoy the Indigo Go Girls music. I don't know anything about the Indigo Girls. If they have political opinions, I do not endorse the political opinions of the Indigo Girls. I want yeah. to just make that clear out front because I don't. I I don't want to be in over my head on this one. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, good good stuff. Uh, so well, uh, thank you for jumping on the Indigo Girls. Now you have to actually, because I've given it to you, review the first song on the mixtape here. Yeah, I uh, just perused this year we got uh percy's is when a man loves a woman this might just in a general sense just want to say this this might be the best mixtape like single book mixtape that's ever been produced it is pretty good right like jokes aside yeah, i'm gonna make some jokes jokes mm-hmm. aside there's really no songs you don't want to listen to except for some predictable ones right but we'll get to those at the end uh i got percy sledge's when a man loves a woman five stars Awesome. It was a great song. That's an all-timer. It's one of the greatest songs ever made. So, yeah, five stars. Uh, I have uh, Really Rosy, uh, sung by Carol King. Um, this is three stars. It's it's fine. Like, but thematically... so many times. I was going to say, yeah. thematically, so important. But as a song, it's mainly just, like, you know, those those lines. I'm really rosy. I'm rosy real. You better believe I'm a great big deal. It's from a children's musical. Huh. It's by Maurice Sendak. Really? Yep. It's a chil- it's a children's musical based on Maurice Sendak's books, or some of them, not all of them, obviously, because the wild Falling things up? aren't there. No. Given That's... that heroic yelp, is that not Maurice Sendak? <laughs> was Maurice Sendak not falling up? Who is that? I is that is that not Shel Silverstein? Oh, that might be Shel Silverstein. Yeah. Oh, Maurice Sendak is where the wild things are. Yes. Got. It. Okay. Uh, Chuck Berry, Say La Vie, four stars. Mm-hmm. It's good. 
Uh, Nat King Cole, Ramblin' Rose, four stars. You think Stephen King just found everything that that had Rose in it? He's like, what's I, all the songs I know? It. I, I suspected we would end up in that situation, but I can think of several not or Rose songs that don't show up. So I don't think he did that. He didn't do a Christine where he <laughs> called up his buddy at the radio station and was like, hey, can you give me the name of every song you can think of that is about a car? <laughs> uh, I got Roly Daniels's Take a Letter Maria. I, I didn't know the song is good. Three stars. Mm-hmm. Solid song. A little crooner, you mm-hmm. know, probably from the 60s. Maybe I don't know. Good. Uh, I got uh, Cliff Edwards, a.k.a. the voice of Jiminy Cricket, singing When You Wish Upon a Star. Uh, two stars. This is overplayed. When You Wish Upon a Star is overplayed? Yeah. Where are you hearing When You Wish Upon a Star? <laughs> Where are you going? You're like in Target, and you're like, oh, fuck, it's When You Wish Upon a Star again. It's just like, oh, it's that damn Cricket song. Ugh. Um, all right. I got, you know what? I'm, I will go out on a limb and say... I mean, some someone actually please make this mixtape <laughs> and, and listen to it all the way. This is a very funny mix to be like to the midpoint of the mixtape and be like, here's the banger. Here's what gets us ready. When you wish upon a star. <laughs> you got to get 1955 quality, too. All right. Yeah. Bee Gees. You should be dancing. Solid three stars. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a bad Bee Gees song. Uh, sure. I haven't listened to all of them, but I don't doubt it. Me neither, but like, how bad could it get? <laughs> it's still pretty good disco, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's probably some like weird folk music in there. I don't know the Bee Gees all that well, but. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, uh, Shirley Ellis, The Name Game, five stars. What is that? Uh, What's that song? What? What's the song? Sing a bit of it. I, I don't know. You don't know the song? I'm, you I'm going song. off of vibes, purely vibes. No, it's the it's the um uh like playground song uh that I act like what is it? It's the one where you say your name and then you just change like the first letter and to make it like rhyme constantly. My name is Michael. Hey, my name is Michael. Hey, yeah, that th- is with him. Hey, like one of those? N- no. I'm no. gonna look it up. You you haven't heard this? No, I've it's like Cameron Bamron, Bo Bamron, me, my, Mo oh. Mamron, Cameron. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. I thought, okay, cool. Five stars. Yeah, it's good. It's yep. better than this next next song. Fucking hey, Jude. <laughs> he can't let it go. Let the Beatles go, Stephen. <laughs> this specifically comes up because Norman uh, like turns off the oldies station because he doesn't want to hear the Beatles. <laughs> you know, broken clocks. You know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes you're an evil cartoon character serial killer, but your taste in music is objectively correct because this gets one star. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tommy James and the Shondells, Hanky Panky, uh, three stars. Hey, you know when uh, the Beatles told Jude not to make it bad? Mm-hmm. He couldn't help it. Because it is. And yeah. you know, uh, you know what the last one is? Oh, boy. You know, and I didn't know if you'd put this in here. Uh-huh. Because I caught it. Uh-huh. And it's just a reference to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. But it's Bob Dylan's, and I thought, maybe he'll miss it. <laughs> maybe he won't see it. <laughs> you gave me Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. To mm-hmm. which I must say, Robert, blow it out your ass. One star. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I had to I had to pull it in because I feel like we have been in a real like dearth of Dylan references. It was yeah. so definitive of like early King, right? <laughs> Dylan really was, was all over those books and then he disappeared for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know where it, where it's housed, but I do believe that Rom in the discord has created a master mixtape that is every song that has ever showed up on the show. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what Rom has done when songs are repeated. Presumably they're in there multiple times. <laughs> so theoretically you could listen to this like 200 song playlist or whatever and uh and you could hear Blown in the Wind like 3 times. You could hear like 7 Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> and probably a lot of Chuck Berry too. I feel like there's been a lot of that. Yeah, there has been quite a bit of Chuck Berry. Uh, but that's the mixtape. Great. It's good. I think just like uh, pound for pound, that's a pretty high hit mixtape. Not numerically, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. uh, but very few, some predictable ones, but mostly threes, you yeah. know, three mm-hmm. and above for the yeah. for uh, for the most part. Just some of the worst bands ever made um, <laughs> constituting the lowest part of the score. But if you bracket them off, if you just say, look, bad bands make bad music, bracket them off, you get some good stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, just to tidy some things up then, just a reminder that we are Range Touch. You can support us uh, at patreon.com slash range touch, where we have all sorts of bonus content for our other shows. But this one in particular has uh, bonus episodes where we talk about movie adaptations of Stephen King work. Uh, This month we are talking about De Palma's Carrie, the first Stephen King adaptation. Uh, I think it'll be a fun conversation, though we haven't recorded it yet. Uh, You can check that out. Um, and, uh, if you are already supporting us, thank you so much. Please tell people about us. We don't do any advertisements except for yammering about ourselves on our own shows or occasional guest spots. So you can tell tell people about us. You can also, uh, uh, go to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a review. If the review is five stars and also funny, Cameron may read it out loud on air. Do you want to do that, Cameron? I do. And look, here's the deal. I say it every time, but I'm I'm radicalizing you. I'm radicalizing the base. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 Howard Deaning you to go out there and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts because we're still sitting at four point nine. You know, every now and again we get a review. It just uh, you know, is not friendly to us. Most of them five stars. Very funny for the most part, to the point where it's like I gotta choose which funny ones to read. That does if I don't read your thing, doesn't mean it's not funny. This means only really, you know, I only do like two. It'd be weird to go for a long time on this. But listen, if you haven't rated us on Apple Podcasts, we want that five. We're, we need that. And everyone who's done so far, this is my personal thank you to you. Thanks for doing it. Big ups to you. You're doing the damn thing. But we need that five. So please get on there and do that. If you've rated us lower than five, please consider changing your review to five. Because I'm asking you to. Cost you nothing. Cost you nothing. Give us a five. Give us the five. Anyway, I'm going to read two uh, reviews here. Um, the uh, first one's from Green Intern. Kind of a play on Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. I bet. That's funny. That's funny I was, I was singing the Green Acres theme in my head, but with Intern. Give me, give, hum a few bars. What? Green Intern, that's the job for me. Bum, bum, oh, that's bum. funny. That's Unpaid good. labor is the life for me. Oh, an unpaid intern? I I assume. (laughs) Uh, All right. This is Green uh, Intern 5 Stars, of course. Insomnia is true to life. 
I just finished listening to the Insomnia episode after sleepless night, a sleepless night with sinusitis, and now I feel like an energy vampire. Most relatable book review I've ever heard. Wow. <laughs> now I want to. I do. I have to intervene here. We don't review these books. We just talk about them. Mm-hmm. It's not a review. But point taken. Hopefully you can uh, look at a, a, some sort of a rude 12-year-old with an attitude and make a balloon-sucking noise at them and become revivified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like a, in the bonus ode we're going to do on Carrie, or that, that is out right now on Carrie, when she makes that uh, rude little kid on his bicycle just eat shit directly into the yard. Uh-huh. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny stuff. <laughs> This one is from, uh, it's five stars, from Super Deluxe, titled The Best One. The only podcast with the power to decide the mechanisms by which Nobel Prizes are adjudicated. I'm doing my part in the fight against the Dylan heads. Exclamation point. Great work. That's funny. Great work to all reviewers. Very funny. And uh, leave a funny review. I'll read it on the next one. Yep. Again, thank you so much. Uh, and if you want to point people to our shows, you can just send them to rangetouch.com where all of the shows are kind of collated. Uh, this one, as well as others, we, we mentioned it already, but we have launched a new show, Shelved by Genre, where we are joined by Austin Walker and we're reading genre literature, currently reading Book of the New Sun. And uh, well, there are bonus episodes for that uh, on the Patreon. We'll be talking about Conan on the next one. We've already talked about Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. So just to do a little bit of promo here, even if you uh, maybe don't uh, uh, actually, I should say, if you like this show, you will probably like the other show because it's very, very similar. Uh, just the mandates are very different and kind of the things that we're talking about are, are pretty different. So if you're interested in kind of like more specifically genre literature fantasy stuff outside of uh, uh, straight Stephen King, then Shell by Genre might be a show for you. Check it out. Mm-hmm. It's also uh, slower. So if you want to read along, uh, it takes us about three episodes to get through a book. Instead of the other. So anyway, mm-hmm. speaking of reading <laughs> next, uh, we will be reading another Stephen King book for this wow. show. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in August, uh, we will reconvene and we will be discussing 1996's the green mile. <sighs> We're really going to have to, I'm going to have to like go lift weights to prep myself for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, well, it's been a while. I've read it, obviously. I, I, uh, I've read most of these up to 2008 or whatever. Uh, I like Rose Matter. Well, yeah, I guess uh, uh, like Rose Matter, I am expecting to notice things about it that I didn't notice at the time, even though at the time I, I, even noticed some things. So I don't know where it's going to fall in my estimation. Uh, but well, that's what the next month is going to be me figuring out to talk to you about. Yeah. And there's all kinds of interesting production stuff around it too. So we'll talk about that. And next month for the bonus episode, we will be doing the green mile film, which is Frank Darabont. Um, so jumping right back down in the Darabont mines (laughs) to listen to old Frank talk about his process. I've got the 4k right here. Oh, golly. Yep. All right. Well, uh, that about wraps it up for us then. So, uh, gosh, uh, why does anyone listen to this show? I can never remember. Ooh, uh, 
doing it for Rosie? <laughs> you know what? Well, we will. This time we're doing it for Rosie. Wow. Wow.